Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome hmm. to the Iron List. I got the giggles because Whitney kept making me laugh during the mic check. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film <laughs> critic for The Rav and Bloody Discussing, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, teen of the 90s. Well, yes. Oh, yeah. And uh, we are recording this, fittingly enough, on Kurt Cobain's birthday. Oh, I didn't realize that. He would That's have been fun. 53 today. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. You know... The 90s were a bit of a sad time. There was a lot of bitterness in the air. Yeah, it was a rough one. But mm. it was also, in many respects, pretty nice and also pretty bad. It was a decade like many others. It was. I think it was unique. It was, I think it was a unique decade. Well, let's talk about this for a second. Mm. First off, welcome to The Iron List. This is a monthly podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network where our Patreon subscribers get to pick a topic for us to do a massive top ten list. A definitive, in our estimation, top ten list uh, of a major topic. We've done uh, the best uh, Christmas movies already. We've done the best film noirs. And for this month, the month of February, for whatever reason, our patrons decided they wanted us to do a list of the movies that defined the 90s. Not necessarily the best movies of the yeah, 90s. The, the word, the phrase you used was the most 90s movies of the 90s. Yeah. Um, and that's something I'm sort of fascinated mm. with, is the movies from within a decade that mm. later on we look back and just say, aha, that was the 60s. Yeah. yeah. Aha, yeah. that was a Saturday Night Fever. That was mm. the 70s. Breakfast Club, that was the 80s. What was the 90s? And I feel mm. like we've got enough distance now oh, yeah. that we can really sort of look back at the 90s with... You know, with less nostalgia goggles and more just when you really consider what cinema was in the 90s, these are films yeah. that really stand out as maybe being influential, maybe just being sort of the er example mm -hmm. of a wave. Um, but, um, yeah, I think we, there's, and there's a lot to choose from. My short list was like 40 movies long. Yeah. And, and I have a couple ties, you know, kind sure. of, kind of two things that are equivalent or balance each other in some sort of way. Mm -hmm. Um, what I found as, uh, as somebody who was a youth in the nineties and now am in the middle of the wave of people much younger than me experiencing nostalgia for the nineties is that nostalgia doesn't function the way I thought it did. How did you think it functioned? Well, I thought it was for a general sense of the time. Mm. We're nostalgic for all of the 70s, and here are things that denote what the 70s are. I found that the things that we're nostalgic for uh, from the 90s in the present day are the kind of things that fit into the modern entertainment uh, thinking, the modern entertainment milieu. Uh-huh. So we're very much, uh, very, like in the 80s, we're very much in a wave of super pop. Uh, things are very uh, lightweight, kid-friendly. We're very focused on fantasy films. That's sort of the, the biggest moneymakers of the box office. That's a good point. We are, we are kind of reliving the 80s. And, uh, and a lot of people are going back to the 90s and trying to pull out sort of the big pop entertainments, and those are the things we're feeling nostalgic for. Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog. We've canonized Space Jam, which aggravates and annoys me to no end. Uh, you know, people say, oh, the 90s, they were such a bad time for movies, but they're only thinking about big blockbusters like Roland Emmerich's Godzilla or Roland Emmerich's Independence Day. Yeah, the counterculture uh, to Hollywood in the 90s, the mm -hmm. independent movie scene was really bustling in the there was 90s. A, there, there was a huge in indie scene. You have, uh, you know, sort of the, the rise of Spike Lee happened in the early mm -hmm. 90s. It, Technically, it started in the 1980s with Do the Right Thing. 
Uh, same with like Steven Soderbergh with sexualizing videotapes. That was the sexualizing videotape that was also in uh, the late eighties. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there was this huge wave of countercultural indie cinema that was serving as kind of an antidote to the big mainstream pop. Same thing with music. Um, and a lot of people, even at the time, kind of objected to the term alternative rock because after a while, alternative was the mainstream. Yeah, that was just rock after a while. It was just yeah. rock after a while. But the whole point was there were they were very actively trying to counter the much more safe, friendly, bubblegum, ultra-marketed, ultra-produced rock of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Bands like Poison and pop acts like Madonna. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden we have... Well, bands like Nirvana, things that, uh, you know, the, what is the genre of Nirvana? They're grunge. They're yeah. all about how unclean they are. No, they're, 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 they're anger made, and, yeah. and... They were angry yeah. and bitter about how the world was shaping up. And I feel like we don't have, like, a big wave of nostalgia for the bitterness of Kurt Cobain. I think it's coming. I do. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, right now... A lot of the things that we have nostalgia for from the 90s are the things that are easily exploited by corporations. Yeah. Like they, Sonic the Hedgehog, because it fits they, into the... with uh, what, what they call marquee value. Yeah, well, it fits There's in, a name in it. It fits into what they were already doing with all the 80s nostalgia. I think mm. what we're going to find as we uh, move on, and I think especially we're going to find this if... Mm. Like, I know some people have trouble about getting political, but if, God forbid, Trump gets reelected, mm. we're entering into, you know, another era of Reaganomics, basically, eight mm. years so we, of conservative rule. And this and I think people are going to be ever more eager to have that mm. kind of anger yeah. represented in our and, mainstream uh, art. And we're starting to see that in various forms. A lot of angry seeing, cinema is out there. Making, a, Parasite is a very angry movie, yeah, par- for example. Parasite is a good one. Uh, yeah. the, the, one the one I keep going to is Sorry to Bother You, just because that is yeah. very directly punk rock. Sorry I, to Bother You, I, Black uh, Klansman. There's yeah. a lot. I, I whined a little bit recently about how uh, youths aren't angry in the same way I recognized mm. from my own youth. and Did you did you have to walk a mile in the snow to make that argument? Uh, <laughs> These cursed today. You sound no, it's, so old when you say that. Uh, well, I am old. I'm 41. I'm not uh, going to apologize. I'm but, not saying uh, you should apologize. I'm just saying you sound. You run uh, the risk of sounding out of touch. Uh, well, I am out of touch. I've never been in touch. Even All when right. I was a youth, I was never in touch. But uh, growing up, I saw a lot of things like grunge and like you know p- waves of punk rock. And you know, when I was very young, kind of the new wave thing, things that were very aggressively trying to confront the pop mainstream. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, it, it took me a, a second to realize that the, the anger is still out there. It's just not in the pop music so much, or even in the pop films. It's leaking through in social media. We have you know grassroots political movements. We have people who are actually forming movements and making political change rather than simply writing folk songs. And uh, that's that's where all of the, the politics is. It's a lot more direct now because we have social media and people can uh, can uh, gather much more easily. Right. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I hope something like that happens. Uh, I think there was a lot of bitterness in the 1990s. I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of unsureness as to where fashion was or where it would go. So there was a lot of deep dives into styles of the time. I feel like we didn't get that throughout the 2000s, and that's definitely borne out in a film like Boyhood, which mm-hmm. came out in 2012. Uh, it was for, uh, filmed over the, the span of 12 years, and Richard Linklater, the director, said in interviews that he was really looking forward to seeing how fashion would change over that span and was frustrated that it kind of didn't. That the, the film, the, some of the 
scenes that he filmed like a decade apart, the people were dressed pretty much the same. I feel like the 90s were a big time for weird mutations in fashion. Yeah. And those were borne out in the movies that came out because some of them tried to go really deep into whatever they thought that fashion was going to be. Yeah. And we saw a lot of really ridiculous outfits and musical styles. You know, one, one film that yeah. isn't on my list, and um, I think most people would be like, oh, uh-huh. uh, is Clueless. Yeah. Because Clueless, although it is an extremely 90s movie, mm. it actually doesn't represent the 90s very well. It represents a very extreme attitude of what the 90s felt like. Yeah, well, but it actually indeed- was like this hyper stylized version of the 90s where every major uh, fad mm. and sort of style only exists within this extreme microcosm. And yeah, I, yeah. Although it, it's very 90s, it's, and it's, surely it's on my runners-up, but I ultimately left it on my top 10 list because I feel like it's not really the 90s. It's, it's <laughs> well, what the 90s thought the 90s was like. And, and indeed, uh, Clueless, if you recall how that opened, it was like fast MTV editing, and they're playing some really hot pop song, and people are diving into pools and having a good time and talking on their phones, and the first line of dialogue is, yeah, this looks like a Noxzema commercial, doesn't it? <laughs> It's, uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's like uh, <laughs> I know, I know what bit, you're yeah. thinking. This looks like an Oxima ad, but this is kind of what my life is like. It's life like an Oxima ad. Sure. Uh, and so I think there was a, like a, a, a whiff of self awareness, which was something that was floating all over the. 1990s. Ironic self awareness uh, was a huge factor of the '90s and a big. But big yeah, I th- big I think, element of a lot of my picks. I think the characters and the uh, emotions in that film, however, are so earnest that it doesn't. It's. It's timeless in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clueless still plays today. Oh, it's fun. And it, it, and feels, like, it, it feels like a period piece, but it's, it, it's very, very fun. Yeah, so, like you'd never mistake it for being made today, but mm-hmm. it's a very, very good movie. Yeah, so, some of the fashions are most certainly dated, but uh, I, think, I think the overall attitude is actually so light and bubbly that it still plays just oh, fine. it's a really without, good movie. Without feeling like a, quote, 90s film. Yeah. Uh, the ones I have on my list, however, couldn't be made any other time. <laughs> Not a not a single one of them. I'm trying to think. Actually, I don't think they'd be made the same way. Okay, I think there's a few that might be. Yeah, but I don't think there's anything made the same way. Uh, where do you want to start? Let's let's get you started with your. We're, when here's again how we do this list. We don't rank everything. Mm-hmm. We each have our pick for a number one. But other than that, we just see where the conversation leads us, and we alternate right. back and forth. Well, I'll start with a, a wildly fashion forward film that was all about sort of this brand new computer technology that was just rising at the time. <laughs> I know uh, where you're going with people, this. People love to make fun of films with dated computer technology. I, I don't think that's necessarily the thing, but Hackers went so far out of its way <laughs> to make the computer technology seem like futuristic and edgy and cool that it never belonged to any era, really. It was this incredibly optimistic film. If you've never seen oh. Hackers, Hackers is about a group of teenaged hackers at a time when... Computer technology was only just starting to completely take over people's lives to the extent that a lot of people were kind of unaware of how much of what their daily lives were reliant on computers. Mm. And a bunch of teenagers who had grown up with computers and become experts in computers long before the people who were in charge of, like, regulating computers could, <laughs> uh, like, kind of lapped the system. And in the movie Hackers, they're treated as basically... Superheroes. Punk, punk rocks, yeah. You know, punk rock superheroes. They're punk rock superheroes. They're outside the system. They believe in rebellion and revolution and anti-capitalism and all of these like really punk rock mm. ideas, but their ability to hack computers makes them super heroic mm. in a lot of ways that sometimes are not even obvious. Like 
one of the first things we see a hacker do in this movie is hack a TV station mm. so that he can watch what he wants on network television. Yeah. It's just TV on demand, but that was a criminal enterprise. Yeah, it's just yeah. he just turned off whatever was supposed to be playing and put mm. on I forget what it was, a rerun of something he just yeah. thought was named. The idea of inventing your own identity and having an online like an, a hacker identity and you mm-hmm. have to have a hacker name. And of course in the movie they have really Kind of, kind of stupid names like Crash Override and Zero Cool, as, Zero Cool, Serial Killer, Serial yeah. but Serial like Breakfast Cereal and Lord Nikon, like what, yeah. like the camera, yes, and Joey. <laughs> Joey poor, had a name. Poor, he, he never had a name. He, he never just, had a name. He was, he, name. He, he was just Joey. Oh, wait. This is, he was trying to think of a name, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, it was a plot. It's like, I'm, I'm Dr. Doom. No, you're just Joey. What I like is uh, they, they live in this fantasy, like, well, not a fantasy world. They live in a world, like, before all those names were taken. Yeah, yeah. Because now they'd be taken, but, and they'd be like, I'm Lord Nikon 97766. <laughs> right. I'm Lord underscore Nikon XXX. This movie came out in 1995. This was before people had, like, online handles. The idea of having a handle well, they that's a weird idea. If you read if you read articles about hackers, they would have cool handles like that, but it mm. wasn't no it wasn't, it wasn't the norm. No, yeah, it wasn't like people like ordinary citizens didn't have them. Remember back when now like, AOL has... Messenger came out and everyone picked cool names for themselves? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, Squirrel Hunt. I'm, I'm Mulder FBI two thousand. Um Yeah. Uh, yeah, this came out in 1995, was before social media, and it really kind of pioneered – well, it didn't pioneer. These sort of ideas were around thanks to, like, William Gibson and what have you. But yeah. And in fact, Gibson is name-checked in Hackers. That's the name of, like, the supercomputer they have to break into. We have to hack the Gibson. Uh, <laughs> it didn't introduce any of these ideas. In fact, it didn't even make them all that revolutionary, but it did uh, display that in a pop uh, – construct you could have these ideas presented to a pop audience yeah and now that everybody has their own twitter handle and their own social media accounts and a definite disconnect between who they are on those social media accounts and who they are in real life the ideas and hackers seem downright revolutionary mm-hmm. uh it's it's a supremely silly movie and i love it i love it too i love the way that because again this is before there was a there was a time and it's easy to forget this mm-hmm. when Scenes of people typing on computers were, or, or like interacting with technology in that way, be it on your phone, your laptop, your tablet, whatever, uh-huh. were really uncommon in movies because it didn't come up that often. Yeah. Like in daily life, most people didn't need to do it very often. And mm. before hackers, people hadn't really cracked the code of how to visualize that cinematically. Mm-hmm. And nowadays it's pretty simple. We see someone on their phone and then we see like a CGI pop-up screen. Like on the, the screen with yeah, them. And yeah, and it makes perfect sense. And we all just come to accept that. But even that only came along in like the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. So in Hackers, you're seeing... Hackers is at this really interesting juncture in cinema where the entire world is about to change. Mm-hmm. Hackers knows it's about to change. But Hackers doesn't actually know where it's going. Mm. Hackers has so a it, lot of it tried, lo- tried to predict and yeah. got nothing right. Well, but that's they got fine. a few things right. I think they got the idea of corporate control through yeah, yeah, yeah. corporations and 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 through so technology. This, this and how, when, when Bill Gates was sort of yeah. riding high. But the yeah. idea that corporations would be increasingly reliant mm-hmm. upon computers to the point that you know these Punk sorts of systems would become just, vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, like these things were prescient, if not just topical. Um, and yeah, the idea of online personalities and anonymity leading to Good things and bad things uh, was, of course, 
very, very much spot on. But when it came time to, like, how is it going to look when people are interacting with computers? Well, we're going to twirl the camera around people 360 degrees while we play really cool songs by, like, Moby and shit. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, we're not doing that. Three-volume soundtrack, Hackers. I know, it was a great soundtrack. Three separate discs. And they're all good. Uh, But the other thing that I like about Hackers, and I think really does keep it in its time, is it's optimistic about technology. It uh, actually, ultim- I think in the end, it says kids are going to the new yeah, generation is going to use a, a it tu- wisely. A tool of the youth, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're going to use it maybe in a fun way and maybe but somewhat irresponsibly, but ultimately they're going to use it wisely, and they're responsibly. They're going to use it to confront they're, injustice. They're going yeah. to save the world, and the uh, ability to spread information over the internet is going to enlighten the populace and make the world a smarter place. Yeah. That was naive. <laughs> well, not, now, in the, now that we live in the age of disinformation, yeah. yeah. No, it's like, but that's interesting, though. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it is an interesting juncture in mm-hmm. cinema. And I almost put it on my list, and then I realized you would. Okay. <laughs> so I didn't Because you, know, you know I like it. Um, I want to talk about, I wanted to do a film that several movies on my list incorporate irony in one way or another. Okay. But I wanted to do one film that sort of uh, symbolized... The irony movement of the 90s. The irony movement, okay. Well, in the 90s... um, Sarcasm was the most popular way of communicating. Well, not even just sarcasm. There was this general detachment, especially amongst uh, young people. Mm. The idea that uh, the world was not meant to be engaged with seriously because things aren't that interesting or important. Because the the old ways weren't working anymore. yeah, Yeah, and so we're going to actively scorn Mm. that which was sincere. And I think South Park would come to define that. And mm-hmm. I, t- I was tempted to put South Park bigger, longer, and uncut on the list. I decided yeah. not to. I think they ultimately came into their own in the 2000s anyway. Yeah. Like, I think I think South Park was a 2000s well, they, they, thing. They, debu- they debuted in, like, 97, around there. Yeah, they were around in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But I think they became the South Park that we know shortly after the movie. Yeah. And then they mm-hmm. became this cultural... Tidal wave right. in the two thousands. That, so that, the, that South Park movie, by the way, is is a great film. It's, pretty uh, good. It, it's really hilarious, and the songs are amazing. The songs are amazing. Like it's spot very topical. on, very Broadway ready songs. I was very tempted. It's, to it's put actually it on kind of smart, yeah. compared to a lot of the episodes of the show. No, no, I agree. I, I think I said I think it was a turning point right. for South Park. But uh, I, the movie I decided sort of best represented the irony wave of the nineteen nineties mm. was the Brady Bunch movie. Fair, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you've never seen the Brady Bunch movie, you've surely you've heard of or seen the Brady Bunch. Mm. The Brady Bunch is a well, and actually, this is I think something really, really relevant. I was talking to someone the other day, and they were talking about how Generation X was probably the last generation to grow up with like multiple generations of previous media. Uh-huh. That was as ubiquitous as what was contemporary mm-hmm. because we had reruns, because we had mm. old movies that were still airing on television regularly. Nowadays, and, and it's been this way for at least the last 20 years or so, um, because of the ubiquity of home video and streaming mm-hmm. and uh, cable stations that are like laser focused on one particular form of content, people don't stumble across their parents' shows as often. That that's yeah that's yeah the totally shows accurate. that your parents grew up with you have to go out of your way to see them they're not just on TV and that's what you watch because it's five o'clock and there's nothing else on right you have to find it so there was this hyper awareness in the nineties even if you were young of media dating as back at least as far as the forties and fifties mm. and so people would Generation X like youths mm. at the time 
would have opinions about stuff like Leave it to Beaver. Leave it to Beaver, or the Twilight Zone, and mm-hmm. certainly the Brady Bunch, which by the early 90s, and that's only like 20 years after the show was on, mm-hmm. the Brady Bunch had quickly become a cultural joke. Yeah. The Brady Bunch was a show about a single mom and a single father. They were both widows, widowers, because, you know, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> yeah. otherwise they're just having sex, yeah, and other, that's not other, right. Otherwise they're divorced, and that is just immoral. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they each have three kids, three girls, three boys. They move in together, and they have impossibly wholesome adventures where the only horrible thing that happens is, oh, no, I got a fo- uh, someone threw a football, and it hit me in the face, and now I, my I nose a, I, hurts. I have a bruise in time for prom. Yeah, know, exactly. They're all meaningless plots. Yeah, they, well... The Brady Bunch themselves were a form of nostalgia. They were very mm-hmm. modern. They took place in the 1970s. It was seen as kind of daring at the time because it was uh, a blended family. Uh, to an extent, yes. Yeah. So, so this was sort of a really uncon- a really way of saying that these unconventional families can have really wholesome adventures. That's true. So it was actually uh, very socially forward at the time. But, but the idea it, that it, they were that wholesome yeah. is what makes them feel completely of the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, so there's in, no darkness in the world of the Brady Bunch, yeah. just nothing. And so in 1995, 21 years after the Brady Bunch left the air, although mm-hmm. they had had multiple spinoffs and TV movies since, Betty Thomas did a Brady Bunch movie, but rather than just do a movie with the Brady Bunch, she decided to... And honestly, whoever came up with this is a fucking genius. <laughs> We're going to do a Brady Bunch movie mm. in which the Brady Bunch hasn't changed since the heyday of the Brady Bunch. They are just as saccharine. They are just as mm. sweet. They are just as naive. They exist they, so outside of reality. But everyone around them is in the real world of the 90s. Mm. And everyone around... And so every time the Brady Bunch does something, there's always someone around them who's actually just living in the present day who doesn't understand a fucking yeah, thing like, that's happening. It's like they're going to they're going to school. I have my backpack and I did all of my homework and I'm good to be there. And there's some guy, like white guy with dreads smoking a joint. What the hell is going on, man? Yeah, yeah it's, that, that's the sort of joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, uh... Um, okay, this is a car, Jack. Well, of course this is a car. But my name's not Jack. It's Greg. And this is my sister, Marsha. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, like so. Yeah, there are all sorts of these complete detachments, and mm. I, it's actually kind of a commentary about like kind of like how society has devolved a little bit. Mm. That we can't be wholesome and sweet. We can't like just accept it. And the idea that people can accept the Brady Bunch for being retro and harmless mm-hmm. is itself kind of the victory of the movie yeah. because everyone wants them to be as dark. As they, they expe- are, and, expect them to be dark, and yeah. and to some extent, the Brady Bunch is actually missing out. Like uh, Marsha has a gay best friend, and Marsha misses all of the cues, <laughs> and it's you can just tell that like both people are really unhappy in this mm-hmm. relationship because Marsha doesn't understand her friend, mm-hmm. and her friend doesn't understand how Marsha doesn't understand how I'm coming on to you so hard. <laughs> There's a scene where all of like the neighbors of the Brady Bunch are talking about we got to get them to move. They're the only people in like the community that won't sell their house, and we can all make so much money. I was in their house once. I use their bathroom. They don't have a toilet. It's like Pleasantville. <laughs> yeah, it's like we never saw one in the sitcom, so they don't have one in the movie. The absolute disbelief that previous media could be as naive as it was, turning into this really brilliant, sublime meta-joke, yeah. 
it's really, really funny, and I think it is one of the best uses of iron of ironic humor in the nineties because mm. a lot of the other uses of ironic humor were kind of mean. They were like yeah, sincerity they're very, they're, is bullshit. They're very, they're very, Brady Bunch very, loves sincerity because it's fun and it's funny. Well, what, what I think, what but I like they about, like the characters. What I like about the Brady Bunch, and I think this is also true of the Adams Family mm. uh, to a degree, um, is that we can kind of have our cake and eat it too with these movies. Yeah, we can laugh at and with the Brady Bunch simultaneously. We're laughing at their naivete, but we admire their purity. Yeah. Um, same with the, the Adams family. We're, we're horrified that they're murderers, but we admire that they're outsiders. Yeah. You know, there's there's a, a a little bit of love and hate going on simultaneously. And I think, yeah, I think the Brady Bunch movie totally nails it. Mm-hmm. And the sequel's really to, good, too. The very Brady sequel. All, same, yeah. It's the same joke over and over, but yeah. the joke's still funny. Um, I'm trying to think of, like... What's the most recent example? I guess the Banana Splits movie mm. came, tried to do that same thing. It's like, let's take the Banana Splits, this wholesome thing, but we're going to turn them into murder robots. And See, that's that, actually and that's a, a dumb that, idea. That's actually literally the polar opposite of this mm-hmm. because we're going to take the thing that was wholesome and say it was always evil. Yeah. And everything around them is more wholesome now than it used to be. Mm. That's why that joke doesn't quite work. Yeah. Because yeah. it isn't like the actual revelation of what the Banana Splits are doesn't actually track. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a neat movie. It's not a bad, you know, it's, it's, dumb. It's pretty bad. Movie. It's, I think it's entertaining, yeah. though. I think yeah. it, I think it's so out there that it kind of works, but it's mm. not. It doesn't work on the level that the Brady Bunch movie does. Right. And although, again, not all of the movies that I'm picking are, I'm saying, are the best movies of the '90s. In fact, most of them aren't. Yeah. Pretty much, is still a really good movie, and yeah. I do think it does irony right. Okay. Um, another thing that that really came to prominence in the 1990s, at least from my perspective and the way I was living it, was mm-hmm. goth culture. Yep. Um, goth culture, of course, was around before this. Uh, I I would say a combination of, uh, like the Smiths and the Cure and and Kraftwerk and also Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice sure. kind of created goth culture in the the pop sense. You know the the way that that fashion looked and it, I think, it popularized it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think. Um, that sort of black leather, unhappy mutant death worshipping type of youth was very prominent in, in my circles at the very least. And there were two superhero movies that sought to exploit that imagery. Okay. So these are two on the same line, and it's uh, The Crow and Blade. Yeah, okay. Um, in that... I think I think The Crow is way more goth than the, Blade. The, the Crow is way more goth. Blade's but, more rave culture than it is well, goth that, culture. Uh, you could, I was going to say, you can see, because uh, The Crow came out in 1994, and Blade came out in 1998, and in that four years' time, you could actually see goth culture evolve from goth clubbing to rave clubbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's sort of like... The entrance and the exit of the same movie. I can kind of see that. Yeah, I, I have another uh, pair of films on my uh, on my mm-hmm. list that kind of do that same thing. It's the entrance and the exit of yeah, the same enough. thing. Uh, but yeah, uh, there was a very very what came in with the irony was also a sense of ennui. Uh, we, we're disaffected. We 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 feel just completely dis- detached from the world around us, and. Uh, that made it made us into like sad poets in in, in certain corners. It wasn't just yeah we're outsider punkers. It's like it, now we're also really depressed about it. Mm-hmm. And I feel that's what goth culture was uh, tapping into. And I feel that's what a lot of pop iconography was tapping into. Especially if you look at music videos, mm-hmm. there's a lot of sad, dark, twisted music videos. Have you seen the music video for Closer? Yeah, for instance. No, Nine Inch um, Nails. Tool, yeah. you know, some of the Alice in Chains stuff out there. The yeah, pure, and, and, and I feel like if, if there was any yeah. movie from the 1990s that was a music video, well, there are a lot, yeah. but, but one, one that sort of re- exemplified that movement uh, in a, a very pop culture sort of way was The Crow. Uh, 100%. Yeah, which was uh, 
a story of a guy who was killed and then a crow, like a raven, a symbol of death, brought his soul back to earth. And, and he was like, and, and he was a grunge rocker from Detroit. Yeah, he's, he's and, a grunge rocker, a sexy guy with like the, the droopy wet hair. And, yeah. and he showed up and he was like, started wearing this like skin tight leather. He looks like Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, he's from awesome. A few years well, he, no, yeah, he looks like and he, the he, German expressionist. That's yeah, what they're he, going for. He, yeah. he looks like the somnambulist from um, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari specifically. And, uh, yeah, and yeah, now he's he can't die, he's, but he's so you know so mm-hmm. hurt by the death of his was it his wife or his fiance? Fiance, his they, fiance. They were about to be married, and they and like they were going to be married like the next yes, day. Yes, and his, his fiance was killed, and now he has to go on this revenge. That is such an old, boring plot. Now mm-hmm. the the sort of idea of the 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 sad man with the dead wife gets revenge because now he has superpowers. It's a little thing. subversive because the idea of someone who was wronged and then comes back from the dead to kill the people who wronged them was uh, typically told from the perspective of the victims and treated as a horror movie. Yeah, and and here the, here the, the here, wronged guy is the hero. Yeah, so it's a little subversive in that regard. That wasn't that common at the time. But I don't think anybody really kind of went to that movie for the story. <laughs> they, no, went, they, went they, the went, they went for the style, they yeah. went for the action, and they went for uh, the main character who was named, and I remember this, Eric Draven, because <laughs> it sounds like Raven. Even though ravens yeah. aren't crows? Pardon? Ravens aren't crows. Ravens aren't crows. Lies. Also, it's worth noting, mm. and, and, and I think everyone knows this, but if you're young, maybe you missed it. Um, Brandon Lee, the star of mm. The Crow, the son of uh, the great Bruce Lee, uh, died on set. While shooting a scene, there was mm. a problem with a prop gun that was supposed to have a blank in it, but there was actually a piece of metal lodged into it fired an actual projectile. And, it wasn't a bullet, but it was an actual yeah. projectile. And there, um, there were rumors at the time that the, the take where he actually dies was left in the final cut of the movie. That's, that's not, not true. true. That's not true. <laughs> it's totally the scene not true. is in there, and it can be very upsetting. And mm. I know a lot of people who were legitimately offended by that, and I get it. Mm. But at the time, I think a lot of younger people were responding to the film as. You know, it doesn't. Brandon Lee died making this movie, and it is a movie about the tragedy of dying too early, dying yeah. too young, and that that added like this layer to the film that I, I think we all would refer wasn't there because he'd be alive, and he was a really wonderful, like charismatic leading man, and he was mm. clearly on the on the rise, and he'd done some fun movies before, but The Crow was like, holy shit, you watch that movie, yeah. he's going to be huge after so, this, that- but like. Yeah, yeah it's just, it, but it just added his, this extra layer of significance yeah, to the, the it, film. His his death while shooting that film, yeah, kind of added to this uh, obsession with death that a lot of kids had at the time. Uh, the, a very specific kind of style mm. of obsession, a with poetic death. death. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's what the movie's about. Uh, it's super duper stylized. It was outstripped by Dark City a couple of years later, but uh, mm. by the same filmmaker. Alex Proyas. Yeah. Ale- yeah, Alex Proyas directed both of those movies. They both look like music videos. They're both great. It's great double I feature. love Dark City. Dark City's um, brilliant. But I think when it comes to really kind of nailing a 14-year-old writing angry poetry in their room, that's yeah. The Crow. Now, that's a sort of a, a death with a twinge of sadness to it. Mm-hmm. You enter into that, there's a lot of celebration of goth culture. There's a lot of... Uh, dark music and dark rave type music, the kind of thing you would hear in a goth club. And in a very short span, that kind of music went from kind of just replaying your favorite Cure records over and over again to this new movement of electronica that leaked into the goth culture as well. Yeah. As well. I went to a goth club once. I was dressed up, got, got some nice black leather pants. Uh, the, uh, a friend of mine even did up my makeup. I was like super nice. gothed out. There are Tell no pictures the- of it. No! Damn it! Just <laughs> I was not photographed Damn that it. evening. Yeah, but there was one magical evening in the late 90s when I got all gothed out and went to a goth club. It's just like you thought. 
lot of lot of hits from the eighties, a lot of the cure, a lot of electronica, no one dancing. <laughs> it's this dark room with a lot of lights waving and people are just sort of slinking in the shadows holding their drinks, like kind of looking at the dance floor. Just like I expected. It was perfect. Yeah, it's what you want. Uh, but yeah, I think that kind of rave culture was, and goth culture started to overlap, and that's exemplified in an incredibly clunky movie called Blade, mm-hmm. which uh, a lot of people like to cite, oh, is the first sort of successful superhero movie. I think it's a different thing. I think you can't compare Blade to the current wave of like super colorful pop military forward action pictures. No, I think you can. Now. I think you can. I think because Blade, because the popular superhero movies before Blade were all about being larger than life. Mm. They were like Superman, you will believe a man can fly. Mm. Batman, you will believe a man can live in a German expressionist hellscape. And uh, Blade, or, or even the Joel Schumacher ones, mm. you will believe Batman could have a Vegas show. Like, right. Blade was about superheroes in the like a real world setting. Like, there's a real world plus this, mm-hmm. and that became the dominant aesthetic yeah. for superheroes. That like, it can be more well, muted, it not, can be a little bit more plausible, and they can be successful. Not, not necessarily superheroes, but a lot of genre pictures, especially vampire yeah. pictures. I think. Uh, like the, the the Avengers movies are less a child of Blade than something like Underworld uh, in terms of style and mm-hmm. ideas. Uh, and yeah, this was Wesley Snipes dressed in his 90s. He's got head tattoos. Uh, and it, the way he's dressed, the fashion in this movie almost began and ended with this movie. Like it, <laughs> it, it existed for such a small period of time. Like, 98 and 99, and that was it. And The Matrix, I think, was also tapping into Yeah, I, lo- I lumped The Matrix in with Blade here. I think yeah, you have to. The, the wraparound shades and the long yeah. black leather coats. Definitely taken from goth culture. Yeah. Uh, you know, the big stompy boots. Only now we're sort of... Because the music is more energetic, the film is also more energetic. So it's about this vampire hunter, and there well, it's was a, way a militarized to make... gothness where it's it's yeah, yeah we're goth, yeah. we're obsessed with death, which, but we're going to take to the streets and it's going to be revolution. Which was, which was actually definitely part of the goth lifestyle if you trace the history of the music. There's a, there's a lot of the you know the sort of the stompy boots. There was even a lot of that underground culture incorporated like skinhead imagery. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it took a lot of that goth imagery, jazzed it up. Made it kind of dumb uh, because <laughs> you look at something like The Crow and it is incredibly earnest. You look at something like Blade and it's it's clearly a little bit junkier. Mm-hmm. And so rather than sort of saying, yeah, these creatures of the night, man, and they've taken over my life and they killed my wife and that's all in there. Or they killed my mom yeah. and that's all in there. And and and, uh, and Chris Christopherson is dying, man, and the vampires get him. There's also a... a a silliness to it, which I think makes it very enjoyable. Oh, well, oh I like and, Blade a lot. Yeah. We reviewed Blade recently yeah, on uh, one of our podcasts, and it holds up pretty good. I mean, it feels like it's of the nineties. Pretty, pretty good. It holds uh, the, up the, pretty the good. Special effects are really terrible. Mm-hmm. A lot of the like the the dude in it is <laughs> seems pretty dated. Uh, I'm glad that they cast a, a kind of, for lack of a better term, a nineties icon like Stephen Dorff as the villain. Mm-hmm. He was in movies like SFW and Cecil B. Demented, playing these sort of outsider characters. I think Cecil B. Demented was technically two thousand. No, I think it was 98. Was it 98? Yeah. I think it was the same year as as Blade. I could be wrong. Uh, But, uh, yeah, we have this sort of bitter young youth. And, of course, he's the villain now. Yeah. So the the gothy gothy hero of the crow kind of mutated into the villain of the 90s. So Mm. you can actually see things evolving very quickly. It's interesting. This worship of death to this vilification of it. The goth perspective uh, in cinema, especially in the 90s, is kind of weird. Like, I almost picked the craft, but I actually didn't because... 
I want to love the craft, but the craft is actually weirdly problematic because it all mm. boils down to here are all these outsiders and she's poor and she's going through mental all, health issues. It turns and out all, all they long for is like vanity and mainstream acceptance. Well, not even that because if you look at the actual plot of the craft, it's mm. like all of these people who are actual outsiders and have actual grievances with society, none of them have actual power until a rich white lady shows up. It's actually got a lot of white feminism <laughs> in it. It's really, really frustrating to watch it now when you look at it with any sort of political lens. It's mm-hmm. just sort of like you have the aesthetics of a really forward-thinking oh, movie, yeah. but actually you're really stuck in the past, even for and, the 90s. And the movie's gothy, but I think it's Feruza Balk that people are zero. Feruza Balk's yeah. great in it. Like, oh, she's Balk's the shit. Yeah. Like, she's awesome. And mm-hmm. it's a fun movie. I just don't exult it the yeah, way others yeah. do. Um, okay, you covered a lot of ground. You covered, I think, a lot of the stylistic, the genuine stylistic that emerged from actual culture mm. in the mid to, in the mid 1990s and the late 1990s with goth culture and rave culture. Mm. I want to talk about this period in the 90s, especially in the early 90s, in which corporations thought they could control culture. <laughs> which corporations <laughs> said, "I know, we know, we're mm. going to tell you what's cool, and you're just going to accept mm. that it's cool, and we're all going to be fine for the 90s, right? It's going to be another 80s and." The kids in the 90s are like, no. <laughs> we reject <laughs> cool as ice. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, I did a commentary track for cool as ice with uh, Jeremy Allison, a clerk over at Cinephile Video. And uh, we, we tried to trace where the hell Vanilla Ice came from. And, you know, Robert Van Winkle, he was he actually had some street cred. He had you know, mm. gotten in trouble with the law and he was not an incredibly talented rapper. But the novelty of a, a white kid rapping in the early 90s mm-hmm. was enough to sell him. They were and, looking people. Let's be honest here. Mm. People were looking for an Elvis. There was like mm. there's there's an entire new the, the musical Elvis culture. Rap, yeah. There's an entire new musical culture that is very exciting that everybody loves. But we think it'll sell even better if a white guy does it. That was what they wanted Vanilla Ice to be. Mm. And, and, and this was not anything to do with Vanilla Ice himself. He was the one who was – and he's spoken very earnestly about this. He was the one who was completely groomed by the label. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, was given, yeah, he was the one who was given that outfit. Exactly he was the one who was given point. the hairdo. He was given the, uh, the attitude of uh, I'm the coolest guy in the world. And I feel like if he had – I'm not going to say embraced it. If he had gone Mr. T with it or mm. Elvira with it, if that was like sort Accepted of Accepted that he was camp. That this weird sort of cartoony persona was his thing and he was still doing that today. Yeah, I'm the coolest guy in the 90s. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, in 2020. He embraced it. That, that yep. would have been great. But, you know, he wanted to be an artist. So he actually went through a lot of really hellish experiences, like internally and externally, trying to – Deal with what the studio was doing to him. And, right. And Cool as Ice was the nadir of that. Cool as Ice. So Vanilla Ice was, he had hit records. He had hit records. And so they said, okay, we're going to give Cool as Ice his own movie. We're going to call it Cool as Ice because his name is Cool as Ice. <laughs> we're going to give Cool as Ice his own movie. Which is weird because pop stars getting their own movies actually isn't the slam dunk studios seem to think it is, it doesn't go well as often as you'd like. And it happens all the time. Yeah, people are always just like, well, give Britney Spears her own movie. No, don't do that. Well, give Madonna her own movie. It's going to take a long time to figure out how to make Madonna work on camera, and you're only going to make it work like four times over the course of 30 years. <laughs> it's like, it's it's tricky to maneuver a pop star into another uh, a milieu. It can happen, but mm. usually the star needs to have an actual, like talent for mm-hmm. the screen, which isn't necessarily a guarantee. Vanilla Ice had no such talent. Vanilla Ice was not a charismatic 
leading man. All he was was artifice, and it doesn't help that the movie Cool as Ice, which is basically a remake of The Wild One. Yeah. A Um, a, a group of outsiders, instead of being a biker gang, they're a a Kawasaki biker game rapper Vanilla Ice crew. mm Mm-hmm. They break down in a small town. And the small town is, like, really, really, really white, which is ironic because Vanilla Ice is really, really, really white. <laughs> and he brings, like, mm. white culture to the white town. Mm. Like, he brings, like, watered-down <laughs> other cultures. And everyone's like, oh, my God, he's so edgy. And everything feels Fake. And it's kind of supposed to. Uh-huh. It's a very arch film, and you can tell that like nobody thought they were doing neorealism. It's clearly they're doing a larger-than-life, almost Pee Wee Herman-ish kind yeah. of music video where everything is cheeky and bizarre. But nothing feel none of that bizarreness feels like mm-hmm. it comes from a genuine place. Pee Wee Herman felt like he came from a genuine place because that was his attitude and his style mm-hmm. and his sort of filter for the world. Vanilla Ice feels like in this movie that every single thing about him has been pre-selected by a committee. Every single thing he wears, every single thing he says, every single song he sings, every single line of dialogue, mm. not a single thing about this movie is genuine. And mm. that is something... Except, well, there's one thing that's genuine. What's that? And that's the photography. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Janusz Kaminski, uh, the, the famed photographer Janusz Kaminski, uh, photographed Cool as Ice. This is before he uh, worked with Steven mm. Spielberg and became Steven Spielberg's go-to cinematographer. He's been mm. working with him ever since. But, I worked uh, with him ever since uh, Schindler's List. I and think. You, you got to interview him once. I did. Yeah. I interviewed Janusz Kaminski, and, and you got to bring up the like the one famous shot in Cool as Ice. Well, I, I asked Janusz Kaminski. Mm. I was interviewing him for Lincoln, mm. and I asked him about. I don't remember talking about a particular shot, but what I did ask him about was, you know, before you started working with Spielberg, you were doing all kinds of stuff, and one of the last mm. movies you did before this collaboration was Cool as Ice. Can you tell me about that experience? He had a great time working on Cool as Ice because no one told him no. He could do all (laughs) kinds of crazy shit. He was able to experiment and have fun Mm. in a way that you kind of can't with a serious drama. So for him, the experience of making Cool as Ice really was genuine. And you can tell that, yeah, there is a certain amount of vivacity that (laughs) comes from the camera work in here. But even so, all of that is designed to sell a completely artificial uh, product. Mm-hmm. And I have one other movie on my list that sort of talks about um, how corporations started trying to manipulate people through cinema in a somewhat more insidious way because this overt thing did not work. Uh-huh. And you can see them trying to adapt throughout the 90s and find different ways to sell you stuff. Uh, and I'm sure if you think about it, you can think of a million different examples. But the one I settled on, I'll get to probably mm. next, I guess. But what's right. your next pick? Uh, next, well, you know, I talked about Blade. We may as well stay with sort of the, the big artificial uh, aesthetics of the 1990s sure. uh, in, in this regard. Um, but there were two gigantic blockbusters that came out throughout the 90s. One was the entrance into a movement and one was the exit. Uh, one is Batman Returns mm-hmm. and the other is Batman and Robin. Okay. Uh, just two films. There was only one film in that series in between the two of them, but they could they are night and day, these two movies. Oh, yeah. Like, you'd think uh, that, like, Batman Forever would sort of bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It's just Batman Returns and then 
someone got hit on the head <laughs> and just yeah. started making a totally different now, franchise halfway there. It's really I, weird. I credit Tim Burton, the director of Batman Returns, for uh, being at least one of the co-founders of the goth movement. Sure. And you can see that in a lot of his movies. You can see that in Lydia Dietz. At least in terms of popularizing. Uh, yeah, in terms of, in terms of that, that aesthetic. It's yeah. clearly something he was into very organically. I think it was yeah. something that was just part of his artistic uh, ideas. Yeah, that, that uh, was whereas, his filter. That's how he viewed the mm, world. Uh, so, so it's not like he was chasing after goth movements. No. He, this was just who he was. No, it's the fact that Tim Burton happened to make a couple of hit movies, and right. so they gave him like a big he, property. Yeah. Like it's total chance that they gave Batman 1989 to someone with an actual artistic vision. Yeah, yeah. It's and really like they could have given it to they, anybody. Like John McTiernan would not have made anything that stylish. He might have made a good Batman, but he would not have been the same thing. That wouldn't have been Tim Burton's Batman. Yeah. I, I, Batman is, you know, everybody says, oh, that's such a good like DCEU or DC movie. Well, yeah, it has Batman in it, but that's a Tim Burton movie. More than anything. And, and, and more, Batman Returns so, in particular. More so Batman Returns because I think uh, Batman was such a big hit that they said, okay, you just – Go a little more crazy. Yeah, we you you clearly uh, had the right idea mm-hmm. here. We're just going to let you go nuts. Uh, Tim Burton's idea was to set Batman in a world where there aren't heroes, which is you know, he set it in sort of this world of expressionistic film noir, where yeah. there's a lot of blacks and whites and no colors, no other colors. There's a uh, just weird impish mutants living in sewers and mm-hmm. people who are like living out these like sex fantasies that they themselves don't feel are all that healthy. All, everyone's emotions uh, are either muted or operatic. Like yeah, it's just yeah. this huge environment. And yeah, there's all these like killer clowns. Everything's a little grungy in those movies, mm-hmm. uh, except for like the Batmobile itself, which looks like a, it, it looks like a death machine. Yeah. It's just this really horrifying looking. Uh, it edifice. looks like a hearse, but the I, coffin's yeah. in the front. I love everything about this movie, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I love Batman Returns. I think Batman Returns, there's still and, an argument made it is one of, if not the best Batman movie. Oh, no, for sure. It's I, certainly I, one of the most thoughtful, like yeah. the one that actually thought the most about Batman, his world, his obsessions, the duality that comes with being a superhero mm-hmm. and having an alternate lifestyle mm-hmm. that people don't know about. Yeah, there's, and there's a... The a, kind a, of world that would spring those people forth. There's a really great line of dialogue, which you can barely he- hear because it's uh, growled by Danny DeVito, who plays the penguin in that movie. He's got those little pointy teeth and he's put on this really weird voice. He's a, it's a brilliant performance. It's a, so it's a great guy. performance, but there's a bit where he, he's like strangling Batman and just sort of yells in his face, you're just mad because I'm a genuine freak and you have to wear a mask. It's like, okay, we're living in a world of freaks. That's why I love Batman Returns. I agree. And I think a lot of that kind of outsiderness, goth sensibility directly informs that movie and that movie directly informed it right back. Mm -hmm. Fast forward like six years (laughs) and we're in Las Vegas and Batman's in a silver outfit. Yeah. And there's there's neon on the Batmobile. He's making public appearances. He's got a personalized credit card. Credit cards. He's got his own uh, Robin now and also a Batgirl and all these weird bright colored technology. The the super villains are now wearing silver suits of armor and shooting freeze rays. What the hell happened? Well, the studio took it over is what happened. Yeah. Batman and Robin didn't... Not Batman Returns mm-hmm. made money, but it didn't make Batman money. Yeah. So they said, okay, we went too far in the other direction. We need to pull it back. We want to do what we always wanted to do, which was make something a lot more colorful. We want, Well, they always wanted to make something... Because you got to remember, in people's heads, well, the Batman scene- was still... like In the mainstream culture, like mm-hmm. most people didn't read comic books, Batman was still Adam West. Mm. They wanted something that sort of bridged the gap between Tim Burton's broad, mm. crazy, over-the-top, fun, you know, get a huge star to play a villain yeah. spectacle and the Adam West funny, 
colorful, good for kids, mm. will sell action figures, get a big star to play the villain spectacle. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that was Batman Forever. Batman they, they, Forever kind of worked. It was uh, a hit. It, it was a good balance. But it, it, it was did, fun. It didn't it did pretend to be too like much. It feel like it was at least in line with the Tim Burton movies, even yeah. though it clearly wasn't that thing anymore. Yeah. Um, they, they did the same thing. They got big stars to play the big villains. Tommy Lee Jones, Jim Carrey, who was enormous at the time. Drew Barrymore, uh, who was a star at the time, has one scene. She's got a few. She's but, got yeah, two she, scenes. So she did that party at the end. But she's got yeah. like her and Debbie Mazar play Tommy Lee Jones's like Two girlfriends, yeah. And it's like... You guys should they're, have your own movie. I'd rather just see Drew Barrymore and Debbie Mazar. They're not named. Stuff. They're not named in the movie, but I think Sugar the, and Spice. They're they're leather and lace. Oh. Their names are leather and lace. That's Debbie funny. Mazar played leather. Drew Barrymore played lace. Um, get them today and and <laughs> tie it into the DCEU. Do a Birds of Prey style movie. They're with both Har- and lace. They're Harley Quinn's moms. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> like they're still be, they're still like awesome super villainesses, but yeah. but today that'd be great. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, this was sort of a good um, – you're talking about how the studios tried to take over with something like Cool as Ice and yeah. tap into what was hip and tell kids what was hip. Right. This is the studio machine just interfering with everything, yeah. trying to get in there and make it as much of a corporate product as possible. And when people talk about bad blockbuster of the, of the 90s, this is one of the ones they refer to. Yeah, this is actually and very specifically the one they refer to Specifically this yeah. film. Because and, you saw how good it was uh, and then you saw the rapid descent – into this is completely unrecognizable as anything we ever liked. Mm. It's trying to be funny. It has no sense of humor. Like, there's nothing about it is actually I, funny. I, re- I remember... The action uh, sequences are incomprehensible. Roger Ebert's review of Batman and Robin, he described the production design as like living in an Art Deco garbage disposal. <laughs> I'll, I'll always remember that. Uh, yeah, yeah, like it's, it's full of u- interesting. It's ugly like, to look at. It's yeah, like, you, it's, and you can tell it's really expensive. So it's like you're only thinking about the cost of this thing as you watch it. Yeah, and it's also not fun. It's kind of a mm. chore to get through. No, it's a really weird. Just on, it's hard to watch. I like. I know that we're starting to have a bit of a critical reevaluation of this era of the Batman movies, and mm. I'm really, really glad people are admitting that Batman Returns is good. I'm okay with people saying that Batman Forever is kind of fun. Batman and Robin is a tough sit. It really is. I know we want to enjoy it on a camp level, and I maintain that if you put on the Spanish language track and treat Batman and Robin as a luchador (laughs) movie-themed Batman-wise, like, oh, what if Batman was a luchador and we followed the tropes of a luchador film, and it's like $200 million and this crazy, Uh, it's great. Yeah. You have to complete, but you have to shut down that this is Batman Mm -hmm. in order to even remotely accept it. And even then, it's not great. And... I totally agree. My next pick actually is a perfect sort of segue here Mm. because I also wanted to do a film that sort of showed how Hollywood tried to turn every blockbuster into a merchandising extravaganza Mm. to the detriment of the film. And Batman and Robin is certainly one of the films I thought of. Mm. But the one that I went for because... It's such a betrayal of the thing. <laughs> I usually don't mind betrayals like no, this. No, but this but, one I think, and this right. one because in this case, yeah, you realize is that what the corporation that made the movie, the studio that made the movie, mm. they have no interest in either the original thing that made this great, or even really all the other stuff that made it fun. Mm. They just want the name. Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. <laughs> Roland Emmerich's Godzilla is... It's quite a bad film. It's quite a bad film. It's not even Roland Emmerich's worst film. Like, it's not the worst film of the 90s mm. by any stretch, but I argue that it is maybe the most 90s blockbuster of the 90s. Like, 
Batman and Robin is weird and bad, but at the very least, it's weird and bad in a very distinctive way. There's mm. no other... Other than maybe Batman Forever, there's no other, like, 90s blockbuster that looks and feels the way Batman and Robin does. Yeah. It's an odd duck. There's, like, a couple other, like, you, but like ones where they try to exploit a pre-existing property and just use it to sell stuff. But you can tell that there's a certain affection yeah. for the material, like the Flintstones movie, where they, production design's really good. Mm-hmm. And there are little bits they, that they, they recreate un- from the cartoon where you can tell people loved that shot. The performances were actually pretty spot on. Yeah, John, like, John Goodman actually gives a pretty good performance... As Fred Flintstone, yeah. but yeah. It, it's not a good movie, but you can tell that there were people who loved the Flintstones who made it. Hmm. I don't think anyone who made Godzilla likes Godzilla. Nor do I think hmm. they have any concept of where Godzilla comes from. The original Godzilla was a very thoughtful and somber and sobering parable about the, nuclear the, the, proliferation the, the, and hmm. nuclear destruction. You know, the, the the echo of of the nuclear the nuclear blast from yeah. years a few years previous. That's why it resonated yeah. is because it dealt with like images there's, of there's destruction still, that people still, recognize. Yeah, still consequences to this, and the destruction will continue. And as people started to sequelize Godzilla, and it became itself a corporate product, mm. but it happened in a more genuine way, where all of a sudden this thing we were afraid of, we started to become proud of it, mm. and he became a positive symbol, and it became a <sighs> symbol of like protecting Japan, mm. and that happened in a natural way. It became kind of silly, but it happened uh, naturally, I think. Kind of silly? <laughs> Often it was enormously silly. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, when when Hollywood got a hold of Godzilla in the late 1990s and they gave it to Roland Emmerich, who had just made Independence Day and it was a huge hit and I totally get it, all they could think to do with it was make a movie about goofy Americans mm. where you don't see Godzilla very much. They, did, and they turned the it into thr- an Irwin Allen film. Yeah. That they did. Yeah. Which is not the worst thing in the world, but none of it had any relevance anymore. Godzilla didn't matter. Mm. Godzilla could have been a hurricane. Godzilla could have been a tornado in New York City, and it would have had just as much impact on anything. It lost all of its meaning, and all of a sudden it became... Something to send people to Taco Bell to pick up novelty cups. Yeah. It became an excuse to sell soundtracks. It became and and which the, sold very well, by the way. Oh yeah, and it's not a bad soundtrack. It's a bad movie, and shouldn't all that music would be better somewhere else? <laughs> but there's good stuff in that soundtrack. But like that's my point. It just became. It took something that was a genuine artistic expression and turned it into a delivery system for crap you don't need. Yeah, and that's something that is so cynical, and yet it was presented so brightly. Mm. They're so happy about this. Like, we're going to make a joke about how people can't pronounce Matthew Broderick's name. Ha ha ha! This used to be about nuclear destruction in Japan. Hmm. His name is Tetopolis, by the way. It's, it's not difficult to pronounce. Not that weird, man. It's Nick Tetopolis. There's yeah. nothing weird about it. You're all uh, adults, for fuck's yeah. sake. Like, you can't handle Tetopolis? Um, uh, 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 to, to cite Roger Ebert again, uh, oh, there, there's a character in the movie, the mayor of New York in the movie is named Mayor Ebert, and he has a mm. sniveling little bold assistant named Gene. Yeah, they look so, like Siskel and, and Ebert. And they look like Siskel and Ebert. And uh, Roger Ebert, of course, noticed that. He's like, oh, and of course, uh, and Gene Siskel pointed this out. It's like, you're going to put us in the movie. Clearly, like, we gave some bad reviews to Roland Emmerich films, so that's why you put us in the movie. Why didn't you step on us and kill us? They they were upset that they weren't destroyed in some embarrassing way. It's like, if you're going to put us in the movie, why not kill us? And then Roger Ebert in his review says, well, if you're going to put me in a Godzilla movie, now I just want my reviews read by a bunch of people sitting in a circle of folding chairs in a darkened theater in Swedish. Like, that's... (laughs) 
Like if he's going to have another cinematic tribute to him. Anyway, uh, Godzilla, it's maybe the most cynical Hollywood yeah, yeah. enterprise of the 90s. And I think and, when you look at a lot of the genuineness that was coming out of the independent world, and I want to start talking about more independent movies in a well, minute. I was like about to, to, to flip on I think that, we focus yeah. mostly on the mainstream stuff. Mm. We need to talk because the independent scene was enormously important in the 90s. But I think it's the ultimate. I think Batman and Robin and Godzilla are the one-two punch. Mm. It, nothing else. Those are the two yeah, most yeah. cynical Hollywood productions of the 90s. I, maybe it's because I was a teenager in the 90s, but I still get a whiff of that uh, off of every modern blockbuster, even though mm. those modern blockbusters are just widely accepted now as just sort of the great definition of our time. I don't sense a lot of... of uh, Anger or suspicion of the gigantic major blockbusters. Well, you you know, Mar- th- Marvel has eight more films, and people say, "Great, I'm going to see all eight. It's yeah, like, or, or I know there's been a, a I think since the launch of Disney Plus or the Fox purchase, I think is where yeah. there's a big turning point. A lot of people started to sour on this. It's like, oh, you're just you're Godzilla now. Yeah. Just you have, you're wearing mouse ears. Yeah, uh, I, I do want to say one more quick thing. Uh, yeah. The other blockbuster that fits that mold uh-huh. that I just don't want to give any more airtime to mm. Space Jam. Boo, Space Jam. Space Jam is not a good movie. We've said it before. No. We did a whole podcast about it. Space Jam mm. is maybe it's, the worst mm. example of that in the 90s, but I don't think it's the worst example because it's highly specific. It's also one of the worst movies of the 90s. It's but, really bad. But we'll, we'll yeah. We've, we've talked um, about that at length. You can mm. find it online. Uh, flipping up, flipping yeah. things entirely. Yes. Uh, in the 1960s, a film came out called Breathless. Uh, 1960, okay. 1960. And uh, it was the first film a lot of critics like to cite uh, that was about people who watched movies. Ah. Uh, the people, uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo played the main character in that film, and his style and his attitude and the things he said uh, were very openly influenced by the American films he saw, mm. uh, specifically like Humphrey Bogart detective movies. Yep. Uh, and the way people spoke in that movie were very much informed by American cinema. Uh, and they even say things like that. And they, there's conversations with filmmakers in Breathless. I feel like there was another wave of that in the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. And there are two films that exemplified how young people were coming to regard popular culture and put fil- like conversations about popular culture in the movies themselves. Right. One was Richard, Richard Linklater's Slacker, and the other was Kevin Smith's Clerks. Yeah. Uh, I've actually never seen Slacker. You haven't seen Slacker? No, never seen Slacker. All right. uh, but I, I know where you're coming from, and I know how Clerks fits in. Yeah, yeah. Clerks and Slacker fit a very similar mold in that they're both conversation films. Uh, Slacker much more so because Slacker is about a wandering camera, wanders around Texas, just finding various conversations. There's not really – like there's kind of main characters we come back to, but there's not like a protagonist. There's not really a story. It's just listening to people talk and kind of exp- – through those conversations, expressing a very vague dissatisfaction with everything that's going on around them and trying to find through talk and poetry what this is all about. Yeah. And it's exhilarating to watch. I love Slacker. I think it's one of the most important film of the 90s, if not the defining film of the 90s. And I got that when I first saw Clerks as well, because Clerks Clerks is a story about people who are trapped in retail, which was a very common experience for young people in the 90s where... This is what we do. We work retail. Someone has to work retail. Is mm. there any upward mobility? No. Not at is all. Is there any hope? 
No. no. Can I even can I paint red with this? Kinda. Not, not yeah. really. You're gonna need a bunch of roommates, and you're basically gonna be stuck like that. Mm. Well, what do I do all day? It doesn't actually take that much mental energy to run, mm. you know, a liquor store. You just keep it stocked, mm. and they're just like, "Well, you're gonna shoot the shit, and maybe mm. you'll eventually come to some sort of understanding about your life. Yeah, and maybe yeah. you won't, which is probably more likely. <laughs> I think Clerks is a little bit more uh, personable because it is about these characters trying to discover who they are and talking about their romances and a little bit more personal life. Slacker is a lot more abstract because it's just various groups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a line in uh, What's the Frequency, Kenneth? The R.E.M. song. Uh, Richard said withdraw and disgust is not the same thing as apathy. Uh, that's Michael Stipe writing a lyric about Richard Linklater referring to a line of dialogue from Slacker. Oh, okay. Where uh, somebody is having a yard sale and they sing, here, do you want a saying? Here, it's like 50 cents. You get a saying. And they, and they read it and says, withdrawing, it, withdrawing and disgust is not the same thing as apathy. That is the attitude of the 90s. <laughs> right there. <laughs> it's, so, it's so 90s, it made its way into an R.E.M. song. Uh, and, and I think that this very self-reflexive, some would call it navel-gazing, but I would say it very uh, self-knowledgeable way of talking about the era you're currently residing in is something that only existed in the 90s. And I compare it to Breathless because it also existed in the 60s mm-hmm. and through that, that new wave of Hollywood that came thereafter, that, you know, the film – the American films that Breathless in turn inspired. And I think that there was a further echo of that, a further ripple of that in the early 1990s in the indie scene. Yeah. Uh, and you also see it in films like uh, the films of Jim Jarmusch yeah. where we're kind of looking at cinema – and looking at culture, the way those two things interplay, and we're just going to sit and talk about it for a second because we need to catch up. There's been too much. We've had too much glut. Let's calm down. Let's sit well, and let's converse. And again, that was that was a counterculture. That was a counterpoint to a lot of the mainstream media at the time, which was very brash and noisy, yeah. MTV, full of commercials. And so the idea of two people just hanging out – and the, mm. one of the tragedies of Clerks, mm. really – is that here are two people, they're at the very least clever. Like, they're um, not idiots. They're, they're not wise. They make a lot of bad decisions, but yeah. well, they're, 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 they have a mind. And all they can think to talk about are their sex lives, many mm-hmm. of which is, a lot of which is quite crass. And Star Wars. Yeah. That's all they've got. It's like, that's that's a tragedy. I I feel like, yeah, that there was this idea that, um, all of the characters in Slacker and in Clerks, although it's not you know explicitly stated and it's not necessarily true of all of the characters, but the idea is that they're college educated. That, mm. that these people perhaps are... I think, or, I think Dante very specifically isn't what he wanted to be. But like yeah, he wanted like, to be able but, to go to college. But there's yeah. this idea that you know there's this adult world out there that they're familiar with. And I feel like a lot of the culture was, we're going to read these great works of literature. We're familiar with stuff like La Boheme. Look at Rent. Yeah. The musical Rent. That is La Boheme. Of course it is. It's a 90s MTV version of La Boheme. It is incredibly dated. Yep. It's very much of its time. And it's incredibly important if you want to understand what the 90s are about. Very true. Uh, the movie came out in the 2000s. We can't include it. Don't watch the movie. The movie also... <laughs> also sucks but even if we wanted to it came out in the 2000s so we can't put out yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah if find the original cast recording of rent listen to that that's the 90s in a nutshell oh my god almost. i listened to that thing so many times like oh, if it was bet. possible it to wear out- down a cd i did it <laughs> i i still have my it came in a cd shaped box but it was two cassettes side by side nice. and i still have that that two cassette box in my bedroom somewhere but uh yeah, this idea that the the kids of the 90s, the kids of Gen X, were actually a smart crowd. Mm-hmm. And they were smart enough to recognize that they were being stiffed. Yeah. And 
they actually had access to high knowledge. And I feel like the echo of clerks came from just the Star Wars conversations. Mm -hmm. This idea that these people are also highly educated kind of fell by the wayside. I think the fact that they're highly educated was sort of inherent Mm. because they were so smart, because they talked so intelligently about silly topics. Mm. And I think that's something people latched onto without even necessarily consciously realizing it, because we realize these are conversations that we are currently having. We just have them quietly. (laughs) because they're not something to be proud of or at least they weren't Mm -hmm. in the 90s and something like Clerks and and I almost uh, uh, picked Pulp Fiction for the same reason (laughs) Uh, but something like Clerks and Pulp Fiction and so, Reservoir well, Dogs. Specifically, the there's the conversation at the beginning of Reservoir Dogs, which uh, is very much in line with what I was talking about. Oh, yeah, about. which is about like a virgin, what like a virgin really mm. means. And uh, these are conversations about pop culture, but it's also about how popular culture relates to them. Like the conversation about in Clerks about the people who work on the Death Star, mm. that's not in the abstract. They're specifically talking about how underneath the story of all of these great heroes and mm. villains in Star Wars, there are working class schmoes who are getting screwed over. Yeah. And, they, <laughs> but, and but also the question is, they're getting screwed over, but they might still have agency and maybe they deserve mm. to be punished for being part of a system that abuses them and others as these people who, sell who their work, souls yeah. and live their and waste their lives working retail. That is smart commentary right there. The original joke of Clerks, specifically, was going to be that Dante gets murdered at the end. And in fact, uh, Kevin Smith shot an ending... Where the whole joke is he's he's working at this job that he's not even scheduled that day. Yeah. He's called in at the last minute. He has to work. It's he wasted sort of the last day, day of yeah. his life doing bullshit. Yeah. yeah that yeah. was the and, point and, of the movie. And also that this retail slavery is just something you're – is going to lead directly to your death. Yeah. That that's a poignant commentary, but given the mood of the film, it seems really inappropriate. It, well, it's really abrupt. Yeah, it really doesn't work. Like mm. maybe if there if the whole movie had been an extended flashback, it might have added something to it. But really, mm. it doesn't work. Yeah, it, or, it, it's an interesting idea on paper, but you would need to tell the movie differently in order mm. for that ending to make any well, sense. Also, the movie's so like sort of bright and crass and exactly. silly. Yeah, um, no, exactly. It doesn't fit mm. the movie that preceded it. So I get so yeah. So I, just I they like, just took it out. I feel like we were reconsidering a lot of our own relationships with the popular culture we are currently with, living within, and uh, there were a lot of films in the early '90s, specifically, that were having conversations about that in very kind of meaningful, almost philosophical ways. And mm-hmm. I think Clerks or Clerks and Slacker. Are, are the best two examples of that. Um, I want to talk about, uh, speaking of experiences that were not being depicted mm. in Hollywood that all of a sudden were put right at the forefront and had an enormous cultural and artistic impact, I think any conversation about the movies that define the 90s would be remiss if we didn't include Boys in the Hood. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, John Singleton's debut feature, he was the, I think he's still the youngest person ever nominated for Best Director. He, I believe he is, yeah. Um, and at the time, I think he might have been the only black person ever nominated for Best Director, which is a hmm. uh, crime. Cool. I think you're right. I think yeah. I'm right. And <laughs> it's right. ridiculous. Mm. Uh, Boys in the Hood is a film uh, about young men, teenagers, uh, growing up in Southern California. And it's really not like a plot-heavy movie. There's no, like, heist or anything like that. Mm. It's just young men going about their days, talking about masculinity, talking about what it means to be a father with their single father who has made Mm. mistakes and has owned up to them and is trying to keep his son on the straight and narrow while also living a life and being... Mm. Not being politically minded while also mm. protecting himself from a world that is inherently racist and out to get him. Mm. Trying to keep him from 
trying to help him live inside a culture where a lot of his friends are joining into the criminal community for reasons that make sense to them at the time, but have no long-term positive impact. Mm. And it's a brilliant drama. Everyone's really, really great at it. Ice Cube blew everybody away. Like, holy shit, he's a good actor. And he is a good actor. Mm. He doesn't get asked to be a good actor very often anymore, mm. but he is. He's a really good actor. Yeah, John Singleton was 24 yep. when he was nominated for Best Director. He was the first black person ever dire- nominated for Best Ridiculous. Director. Uh, there have only been six black people nominated for Best Director. Um, and the the next five were from 2009 on. Yeah. so th- th- That's absurd. Yeah, Boys in the Hood was 1992. Yeah. Or excuse me, ninety one. Yeah, or was it ninety two? It was ninety one. And and the and yeah, from ninety one to two thousand nine, all white dudes. And although the movie's title is stylized, there's a Z in it, and mm-hmm. is only the and is only the letter N. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's not, it's not that, exploitation. It's not yeah. well, it's not even exploitation. It's not even that stylish, really. It's actually just a very mm-hmm. serious, grounded drama. And what you find is that the success, critical and financial, of Boys in the Hood opened up a whole new wave of black cinema Mm. in the 1990s. But what's interesting is you watch it become gradually, in fact, sometimes actually very quickly, more exploitative Mm. as movies started to focus more on the criminality of it. Like you started getting menace to society. You started mm. getting, and then as things started getting more stylish as more music like, videos, getting like belly, belly yeah. belly's a perfect example here. And there are many, many brilliant films that were made during this cycle. Set it off. I think is one of the best heist movies ever made. <laughs> set it off is, yeah. Alas, it didn't make enough of an impact in the nineties to really belong on this list, but set it off is brilliant. And I love set it off. <laughs> um, and uh, there's another movie I almost put on here. Go, go watch set it off, by the way. Seriously. Yeah. Watch set it off. It's so fucking good. Um, but uh, the other movie I almost put on here, and I decided it didn't make really enough of an impact, but I do feel like a lot of the things that it has to say and a lot of the sort of ways that it incorporates different elements of the culture into <laughs> one cohesive film mm. is a movie that was largely derided and mocked when it came out, but has aged beautifully. It's Tales from the Hood. Tales from the Hood, it, I... People derided it. I it guess because it's a, a silly title. But it was yeah. considered. It was a silly title. A, the most of the advertising was about the framing device, which is mm. the only jokey part of the film. But it is an anthology film about different horror stories involving the contemporary black mm. experience, yeah. involving uh, corrupt cops, racist politicians, uh, the criminal, uh, not the uh, the incarceration system. Uh, and and even think, topics that are not as you know positive for the black community, like that don't necessarily paint them in a positive light. There are stories of child abuse and mm. people who are actually sort of betraying their own cause by perpetuating uh, ideas of violence. It is a film with so much on its mind that it's a damn shame it wasn't. Eventually led to a sequel recently, mm. but it really should have like opened up a larger conversation in the genre of like various other genres yeah. and what well, those experiences could you know sort of teach us and add to genres that typically were seen as very white. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I unfortunately all of like mo- most of the films I have on my list were like pop hits rather yeah. than uh kind of films that sparked movements, but Boys in the Hood is an excellent choice. Yeah. Um if I were to choose, oh golly, like films that started, like f- films of of the movement of like pu- pushing like black filmmakers and you know mm-hmm. African American community into cinema, I probably would have chosen something a, a little more mainstream, like Malcolm X. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, because uh, Malcolm X I, was huge at the time. I, I wanted to put Get on the Bus mm-hmm. on there because I feel like that's actually uh, Spike Lee's most. 
I mean, Malcolm Mac is fantastic. Yeah. Well, Get on the Bus is a personal film, but what I love about Get on the Bus, if you if you've never seen it, and it flew under a lot of radars. Um, it's uh, basically about a group of uh, black men on a bus, and they're going to the Million Man March, mm. but. And, and how they have trouble getting there. Well, you have trouble getting there. It's a road picture. But every the, the only thing they really have in common is that they're going to the march. Mm. They actually have entirely different like political ideas, viewpoints. And it's just putting them in a pressure cooker and getting them to talk. And it's mm. actually... It covers all the bases. Like, it's actually mm. just one of the Spike Lee movies that just has a large, sweeping, thoughtful conversation in which every angle gets explored, I think, equally well. Yeah. Um, so I love that movie, and I think it has a lot to do with, like, 90s politics, but I think Boys in the Hood mm. had a larger stamp on the 90s overall. Um, I, they, totally all legit. Yeah. Everything everything you just said. Uh the rise of uh, black filmmakers and African American films about the African American experience also led to a rather unfortunate trend uh, of tokenism. Yeah, uh, where a lot of white filmmakers and white producers felt, oh well, we're seeing that you know films about the African American experience are kind of gaining some traction. We need to have a black character in our film, mm. not the main character, kind of a sidekick. Yeah. We need to, and you know, this also led to uh, like other other minorities. We need, also need to have a gay character mm-hmm. as a token, as a sidekick. Uh, there's we a, need, we to need be a woman Latin, in this action Latinx. Movie. Yeah. yeah, there's a yeah. there's an, a like, female sidekick, yeah. and th- there was always white kids right in the middle of it all. Yeah. One of the worst offenders of this, a film that made me cry and I loathe, is William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. <laughs> This also made my list. Uh, did it? Okay, yeah. good. Can, can we slag the hell on this movie for I, a little bit? I don't hate this movie the way you do, but I do oh, think it's gosh. incredibly 90s. Uh, it's, well, first of all, just stylistically, this goes all all over the place in terms of what we referred to as MTV editing at the yep. time, and that everything was really over-designed, everything was fast-cutting within the frame, and a mm-hmm. lot of just really quickly delivered dialogue. I, I use this expression uh, a lot, but mm-hmm. Baz Luhrmann is dangling keys in front of the audience. Because he, he thinks that you're seeing Shakespeare and you can't handle it, mm-hmm. so the only way to keep your attention is to throw in sex and guns and mm. fast cutting yeah. and music videos and it, and it feels he, his justification is rational. He said mm. he argued that Shakespeare didn't make art house plays; he made blockbuster plays. So this so, is what it, what it would look like well, today. Well, yeah. and and that's not unreasonable, and that's probably true. There probably would be if Shakespeare working today. He'd probably be working in a somewhat MTV milieu. Mm. Take a drink in mm. the mid to late nineties. That's probably not unreasonable. However. He would have had a little bit more faith in his audience, I think, and he wouldn't have been it's, nearly as hyper-frenetic as this. Yeah, I, I feel like I, – I saw this when I was in college, and I felt – and I had – by the time I was in college, I had read Romeo and Juliet every single year of my school career since the seventh grade. So, always required. So I was bloody sick of that damn play by mm-hmm. the time I went to see it. It's not his read. best play. No, it's definitely not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's emotional. It kicks. Like, it works. The, the, but, like, the love poetry is good. Yeah. The tragedy is sad, but it doesn't read as tragedy. Like, what, what are the flaws in these characters that's leading to this? And everyone says, oh, it's the conflict. Well, yeah, it's the conflict. But are, are Romeo and Juliet, like, the innocents that get eaten up in this thing? Because... I think I think Romeo and Juliet themselves need to be presented as having more agency in mm-hmm. what's going on here, and a little bit more not more knowledge because they're clearly smart characters. But they're anyway they're making dumb mistakes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I wish their dumb mistakes were heightened more in productions right. of Romeo and Juliet. That's as maybe. The point is, if you're a teenager going to see Romeo and Juliet in the late 90s, you've probably read Romeo and Juliet, and you're probably really, really familiar with that play. 
You know what's going on in that play. You've studied that. I'm sorry. Even if you bit. haven't, everyone understands the basic gist. The of basic Romeo gist and of Romeo and Juliet. You've seen so, it satirized in cartoons. What Boz it's L- filtered yeah. down. So Boz Lerman's choice to dumb it down a shade and pander <laughs> a little bit to the MTV audience was bloody insulting. Yeah, I still cried because when when Juliet kills herself. I uh, but yeah, you got. Two hot young stars. You got Leonardo DiCaprio and you got Claire Danes to play Romeo and Juliet. Little old full of roles, but hey, we're going to age them up a little bit. The yeah, gun, no, you, the you, gun, that, that makes sense. The guns all have dagger and sword names so you can keep some of the original language. Get it? If, <laughs> Get it? And and I, I think it was actually really insulting to um, – I, I don't want to come down on diversification because mm-hmm. I think diversity is a great thing. But again, Romeo and Juliet are still the white kids. The Capulets and the Montagues are all pretty white, but now we have Mercutio and and um, Tybalt and Tybalt uh, were minority characters. It's like I don't know. Mercutio uh, okay. is a heroic character. He's the only person in that movie who does nothing wrong. Well, and he's the only one who understands it. But here's the problem: they they shrunk his role. In the play, okay. he actually has a much bigger role. In this one, it's like okay, he's he's a black queer man. Oh great, okay. Oh wait, but and Harold Perrineau plays the shit out of that Queen Mab speech. Uh, yeah, Harold well, Perrineau is really he, good in this movie. He, 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 I will defend him in this movie. I feel he's like he movie. tries, but I think he's undercut by the filmmaking. That's probably true, mm. but I do think he's very good in it. Yeah, and, and I think I think of all the young actors. I think here's the deal: mm. every young actor in this movie who's trying to get their hand, their mouths around Shakespeare mm. is struggling to the with the exception mm. of Harold Perrineau. And John Leguizamo. John, and, well, and John They're Leguizamo, both really good. John Leguizamo is like, he was a theater guy. He knows how to do that. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes are awful in this movie. Uh, and I will hear no arguments to, to the contrary. I think uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is sort of relying on his open Hawaiian shirt and his good looks to get him a long way. I, I don't he think sold he's, a lot of Hawaiian shirts. Uh, uh, with no buttons on them. Yes! Why would you need them? <laughs> And, and it's not like he has, like, this broad-chested, sort of studly-looking guy. But, you know, he was walking around with his shirt off. And, you know, he's a big, big sex symbol at the time. But, yeah, he's sort of, like, chewing up the words as if he's, like, just sort of, sort of the Southern California kitty wa- is. Watch Claire Danes say the word, wherefore art thou, Romeo, and try not to wince. Yeah, that's not her wheelhouse. No. <laughs> it's like, Where, wherefore art thou, Romeo? It's like, <laughs> oh, no, shut up. And yet, that kind of, like, we were talking about sort of the intellectualism that sort of came with the conversations in films like Slacker and Clerks. Yeah. I feel like this is a film that was paying lip service to that intellectualism because they're doing real Shakespearean language, man. But they're doing everything they possibly can to obfuscate it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was something that a lot of the pop, uh, pop art of the 1990s was also trying to do. Understand that there's an intellectual dimension to what they're doing, but not acknowledging it or doing it right at all. And it, it all just sort of landed in this funnel that was Romeo plus Juliet. I, I'm nowhere near as down on this mm. movie as you are. There are worse cinematic Romeo and Juliet. I would rather mm. see this Romeo and Juliet than uh. the 1930s Romeo and Juliet. That, which that's is a pretty large, awful film, too. Which is largely unwatchable. Mm. Like, it's really, really... Mm. Even though, like, all the cast members are, like, good in a vacuum, they're not good in that film. Yeah, there, well, there's, there was that uh, Haley Steinfeld, Douglas Booth oh, Which I didn't even see. Which had great production value, but then they added dialogue. It's like, don't what, do that. What, what are you either, doing? Either change all the dialogue and yeah. just make it, like, your retelling the story which is fine mm-hmm. that's what all Shakespeare did or you keep the dialogue because yeah. it's Shakespeare you <laughs> dinks what are you doing <laughs> so like I don't I'm not as negative on this movie as you are I do mm. believe it's entirely of its time which is why I put it there I think when you t- I think stories that get restaged mm-hmm. 
over and over again for new generations are often a really good litmus test for looking at how different mm-hmm. generations value different things artistically and beyond. And I think the idea of this is this generation's Romeo and Juliet and how incredibly superficial it was yeah. and how the sort of the tween angst and anger from it comes across as extra immature. And I think that's actually kind of in the text. Mm. Um, so I, I don't have any disregard for this one the way you do. I, I'm not going to fight you on it. I don't think you're necessarily <laughs> okay. wrong. Uh-huh. But I also don't think it's all to the detriment of the text because I believe the entire point of Romeo and Juliet is that these people are immature. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think playing the movie out like a work of sort of mainstream immaturity, you know, maybe it's not the best approach, but I don't think it's a bad approach either. I think yeah, well, it, I think it's fine. The the one filmmaker I wish I had always seen uh, had seen do a Romeo and Juliet, and I can't really watch his films anymore because he's just a, a relentless pervert. Mm. But it's Larry Clark, yeah, uh, who did films like Bully and Kids. He probably would have had an interesting approach. I, I think, yeah, sort of staging Romeo and Juliet as these sort of like depraved idiot teens would have been a really yeah. great approach. When I think about um, movies that handled the teen experience mm. in the 90s, and there were tons. Oh, absolutely. And there's, a, and there's actually like three that ended up on my list, and I'm about to get to them in mm. pretty rapid succession. All right. Um, but there's one film that I think is actually really interesting, and we've talked a lot about corporate products that very intentionally siphoned away anything interesting mm. and mm. left behind only advertising clips. Mm. There's at least one corporate product that, because it was a smaller production and didn't get a lot of attention from the mainstream giant studio heads, and because I think people just weren't sort of paying attention and didn't pick up on just how thoughtful and mature it was, and it's a movie that I didn't even see until a couple of years ago, and then I was like, holy shit, this movie's brilliant. (laughs) A goofy movie. You gotta be kidding me. I'm not fucking kidding you. Uh, Have you I, seen this movie? No. It's good. Okay. It's legit good. Okay, so back in the 90s, there was uh, the Disney Afternoons. Uh, there was a series was, of Disney cartoons, mostly of excellent quality. A few of the later ones sucked. Yeah, well, there was there, it was started with DuckTales. Yep. There was Chip and Dale's Rescue Ranger. The, the idea was to take uh, characters in... Uh, from the Disney canon, as it were, yeah, and recontextualize them, right? So we had uh, a, a detective show starring Chip and Dale, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, yeah, which was we a combination a- of Raiders of the Lost Ark and Magnum PI, but they're chipmunks. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> odd. The weirdest one was Tailspin. Let's take characters from the Jungle Book. And remake Only Angels Have Wings? Yeah. This quite good, but rather now obscure movie from the 1930s. Yeah. About plane delivery pilots during wartime. But now this tailspin was in the Caribbean. What? It's good. It's good show, but it's a weird weird premise. It's a really strange premise. Must have been a hell of a pitch. That's all Um, I'm saying. Then, then of course, there was the the height of them all, and that was Darkwing Duck. Darkwing Uh, Duck was pretty pretty special. Where they took characters from Ducktales, some of the characters from Ducktales, and added a few new characters and made a superhero show. Yep, where they're all animal people. Excellent parody of Batman. Um, Mm. And then uh, what was the other one? They. no, Gargoyles. Goof, oh, gar- Gargoyles wasn't... Well, I guess it was part of the Disney It was part of Disney Afternoon, afternoon yeah. but it was considered like, okay, we need something to compete with Batman, the animated series. We have Darkwing Duck, but that's funny. We need a serious show. Mm-hmm. And Gargoyles is really good. It's been a while since I've seen Gargoyles, and but I, mean, I remember really loving it. There are parts it. Um, of it that don't work, but the yeah. overall mythology and yeah. the characters are really, really strong. But, but then there was a show that, that... There was Goof Troop. Yeah. Goof Troop was basically their take on a sitcom. And the idea was really, really simple. Goofy has a son. 
Mm-hmm. Goofy's mom is not, uh, the son's mom is not in the picture. They because don't really deal with that too directly. Oh, there's, Go- an element, there's an Go- element of... Disney loves dead spouses. Well, but yeah, but they never really talk about it in, mm-hmm. any, in any detail, at least that I can remember. Maybe you're remembering more vividly mm-hmm. than I am. Um, but it was a story about a kid who was embarrassed by his dad. Mm-hmm. That's it. We, a lot of kids can identify with that. Mm-hmm. At some point... Everyone's parents embarrass them, at least when you're young. Yeah, everybody's got a goofy dad, and in this yeah. case, it's actually goofy. Yeah. The Goofy movie mm-hmm. takes all of that sort of sitcom stuff and puts them in a road trip. Okay? That's right. not complicated. That's, that's simple, basic. That's not even interesting. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about it is that it was a film very specifically, and there's been a lot of really thoughtful criticism mm-hmm. uh, written about this. About the black experience at the time. Hmm. And what we have here is an intergenerational story about a young boy who wants to be part of the current experience, who is currently cool, like in the music scene. He wants Hmm. to uh, stay home, get the girl. And yet he has forced to spend all of this time with his father, who he has no connection with. And Hmm. over the course of the film, they actually find, they actually bridge the divide Hmm. between one generation. And another in a really beautiful, sweet, honest way hmm. that incorporates a lot of important cultural signifiers. Huh. And it's it's a good movie. It's it's maybe it's not Disney's best movie of the era, but I actually think the reason why, after all these years, more people are talking about the Goofy movie than are talking about Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm. than are talking about mm. Rescuers Down Under. And yeah, maybe not the bigger hits. I mean, mm. Beauty and the Beast is Beauty and the Beast. But the reason why Goofy movie actually lingers is because it was, <coughs> excuse me, it was earnest. Mm. Here's a corporate product. They're selling you Goofy stuff. But nothing about it feels forced. This hmm. is actually a character-driven drama that snuck under the studio system and got made and got made really well and really connected with people. And this is the reason. It's this rare thing that keeps people connected to a corporation like Disney. Because every <laughs> once in a while, they'll do something genuinely that, pure. That actually connects. Yeah. yeah, they'll do something that is really just like, I, there's no significant flaw in a goofy movie. Maybe no. the songs aren't that memorable. Who gives I, a shit? I kind of feel that way about uh, The Emperor's New Groove. Yeah. Which was made kind of off to the side and came out unexpectedly, but it was made like a, a Warner Brothers cartoon. It was a slapstick comedy. That's how I feel about was, Lilo and Stitch as well. It was considered oh, as a minor film mm-hmm. for Disney, and but because it was minor, because it was like not given nearly as much like oversight... There, there, there was less it, at stake now. Yeah, and, and as a result, the characters were interesting. The story mm. was interesting. But those were later films. Goofy movies is this really interesting oddity. Mm. And I think it represents the absolute best of corporate cinema <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> because right. they managed to make mm. something real kind of by accident. All right. At least the studio. I mean, I'm sure the filmmakers did it on purpose, but yeah. the studio did it by accident, I'm sure. No, well, let's see. How can I segue into something? I don't know. Let's go from a Goofy movie uh-huh. to The X-Files. <laughs> it's, a TV, it's a TV show that became a movie. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That's the the X Files was a movie. Yeah, it's uh, a really good, uh, really good transition. The uh, the title of the movie is just the X Files. Although if you look it up on video, it's called X Files colon Fight the Future. I think just to distinguish it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they actually officially changed the title. It's like Harley Quinn colon Birds of Prey. It's not the an official it was just, title change. I think but, it was one of those ones where it was on the poster, the mm-hmm. X Files, and then and Fight the, the Future was the only the thing. Future, but yeah. it was such a short tagline mm-hmm. that people just started using it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, the X Files represents the nineties uh, in in ways nothing else does uh the 90s were the end uh the end of the cold war happened uh, in, mm-hmm. in the the re- end of the 1980s 
and the role of our government started to come into question. Yeah. Uh, the government was just to sort of pr- protect the status quo, make sure the uh, the economy was good, and Bill Clinton was in office, the economy was great, Every you know, that we weren't at war anymore. It seemed like a blissful time. Mm-hmm. Oh, how ignorant we were. <laughs> um, but the X-Files pointed out something that was really going on at the time, that we started to look at the government and say, wait a minute, what have you been lying about this whole time? Which is now, weird that it took us so long. You'd think after hmm. Watergate, we would have had that right away. Well, there were a it lot of... about of, 15 years there to were get some, the There were some p- paranoid thrillers, mostly about like nuclear proliferation in like, yeah. the 60s and 70s, but... Um, this was about something a little bit more fantastical, and it was based on something that was sort of floating around in the subculture at the time, and that was UFO sightings. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see the TV show Sightings? I vaguely remember it. It, it. Was, it was like an Unsolved Mysteries type show, where there was a lot of reenactments and a lot of interviews. It was a documentary show, but it was all about sort of I saw Bigfoot. The, the paranormal. Like, yeah. here's psychic photography, here's Bigfoot, here's aliens. Yeah. Loved that show. It's, <laughs> it's awful, but I loved that show. And I think that that was a film, uh, a TV show that led. During what was the Invader Zim version of that? It was like mysterious mysteries of mysterious the, mysteries, something like that. Uh, but yeah, The X Files was a movie. It came out in 1998. It was a huge, huge, huge cultural touchstone. It's one of the rare cases, sort of like the Simpsons movie, where uh, the film came out in the middle of the run of the show, and the show kept going. Usually they they would wait until a show ended before they started talking about a movie. Hence the Brady Bunch, hence mm. you know, the Star Trek show uh, movies. The X-Files actually played into the continuity. Intercontinuity in a TV show was kind of a novelty at the time. And it really just sort of put out there the idea that our government is not on our side. The American government isn't interesting and isn't operating in the interests of the American people. They staged this by saying that the government was in league with a bunch of crashed aliens and that they were cloning people and they had alien warriors and they were spreading black oil into people's eyes that was taking over their brains that was discovered 30,000 years ago by cavemen and they had bees. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when the bees started. The bees is when everyone started to check out. Yeah. It was like, oh, we're going to find out what's really going on. They're bees. It turns out it's, it turns out it's bees. (laughs) Bees are going to spread the plague. I'm like, no, they're not. And and it's like mind mind alien black oil. The actual plot of the movie is, is kind of incomprehensible if you don't know the show. It's actually really incomprehensible even if you do, because Mm. it's, it's weird because the X-Files introduced so many new, new elements to the the movie. Wasn't like the Brady Bunch movie. Wasn't like goofy movie where Mm. like, I still think Goofy Movie was actually still on, but like mm. the X Files is still on the air, mm. and as a result, they weren't telling the X Files story; they were telling like this resolution. Story, they were telling yeah. an X Files story, and as a result, it didn't feel standalone. It had to be right in the middle. It couldn't mm. really resolve too much. It couldn't even introduce too much mm. because it was just this own weird yeah, thing. All, all it could do is essentially pander to fans, and so yeah, I remember that, almost nothing of the actual plot of the movie. Yeah. I remember you remember them almost best, kissing though, right? I remember them almost kissing. <laughs> I remember, I remember uh, J- Jillian Anderson getting stung and being mm. taken to Antarctica, and Mulder has to go to Antarctica, which is not nearly as easy as the movie tells you it is. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, look at all this spaceship stuff. If only I had brought a camera. And then, and then he didn't bring a camera, so he can't prove shit. Mm. And then he saves her, and there's at one point where he actually gets the curse, unlike on the show, and he goes, shit! Does he say shit? He says shitstorm. Shitstorm earlier in the the movie where he's like having a conversation in a bar with a bartender is like oh. and when things go down it's gonna be a shitstorm. See, I remember him like falling and going shit. Although I might be conflating that with Eddie Izzard's one line of dialogue in the Avengers. 
I think he said fuck in the Avengers. Did it? There's yeah. this because in the Avengers, first off, it's based on the 1960s show. Mm. It's not a good movie, but there's really funny stuff in it, and I actually do recommend watching it if you like big weird misfires. Uh, maybe not that I would encourage people to take acid, yeah. but <laughs> it's it's an acid head kind if, of movie. If you ever wanted to see Sean Connery in a pastel teddy bear costume, this is the movie mm. for you. But what was always weird about it was they cast as Sean Connery's henchman mm. Eddie Izzard, and he has no dialogue. Uh, you yeah, got really, Eddie Izzard, you a, idiots! A really chatty British comedian, and he doesn't speak. That's yeah. such a weird gag. Anyway, I digress. I, I was tempted to put the Avengers on here as well, mm. but I feel like I had enough like, we, sort of pop misfires. It's fine. There's only we, we have to spread it around. Yeah, yeah. But I, I it's feel interesting like how many uh, things. I actually yeah. have one more. It's interesting how many of ours are based on TV shows. That's true. I guess that, so, weird? Uh, that says a lot about um, the '90s and how yeah, sort of insular the, they were, and how they were the, doing uh, stuff based on other shit. So not only is the X-Files sort of bringing to mind the sort of paranoia about our own government, that was a real-world concern at the time and how we were sort of looking to our own government with suspicion and understanding very bitterly that they're not going to be doing what we ask, even though things are really fine right now, generally speaking, unless you're gay or black or uh, or, or poor. Yeah. Uh, but also it spoke to something that's happening really powerfully right now, and that is fan pandering. Fan service. Yeah. I feel like a lot of film, and I, I've almost put uh, Star Wars 1 on my list, I Phantom Menace, because I feel like uh, starting with Star Wars 1 and going into the rest of the Star Wars movies, these films are being made as a reaction to how fans felt about the things rather than any sort of genuine need to continue any kind of real story. Like yeah. It's not like we're exploring new facets of the universe. People don't care about that anymore. Yeah. We just want more of the same. And I feel the same way about a lot of blockbusters now. In direct ways, like the redesign of Sonic the Hedgehog, where people on, people on Twitter are just saying, that's an awful design, do it again. And the studio says, well, there's not a lot of artistic integrity in a movie like Sonic the Hedgehog. Why not? We'll just redesign the character. But I feel the same way about, you know, a lot of um, a lot of the Avengers movies. You look at Avengers Endgame, the second to last film in that series. Mm-hmm. Uh they uh, it's called Endgame and there was one ever one after. Uh that was a film very much predicated on how you sort of felt about the characters coming in. And I feel like a lot of these things are really kind of grandfathered in through this now kind of nebulously defined version of fan culture. And mm-hmm. uh the X-Files uh kind of built the internet in a lot of ways. In the early days of the internet, mm-hmm. Mystery Science Theater and the X-Files were everywhere. And, and, and pornography. No, not even Star Trek. Not even Star Trek? Mystery Science Theater and the X-Files were the kind of like pop phenomenon that helped build internet and internet conversations. Okay. And I feel like uh, fan reaction to the X-Files was one of the things that was very be- being very directly pandered to with the X-Files movie in the late 90s. Uh, so yeah, two things are going on simultaneously with the X-Files, both of which were very definitive of the time. I think so. I th- for me, the reason why I wouldn't put it on there is I feel like the show was doing that more than the movie, but mm. fair enough. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about a phenomenon that was being widely discussed and mocked mm. in the 90s, and I feel like our attitudes about it have largely shifted, but sometimes in a lateral way. Mm. Political correctness. Okay. Political correctness was what was the name given to a movement uh, in the late 80s. Sensitive speech. For sensitive speech. uh, Was basically like, hey, why don't we call people things that they'd like to be called? (laughs) Why don't we, like, not say racist and shitty, sexist and homophobic and bad things all the time? 
To which a lot of people said, you're mm. taking away our right to freedom of speech. To which we Wait, said, that doesn't mean you have to be an asshole. To which they, they said, yes, fuck we do. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so there's always been this like weird backlash to just, hey, what if we're not assholes? Mm. Where people will be like, oh, you're a social justice warrior. As if that doesn't sound like the coolest thing ever. Social justice warrior sounds awesome. Every single hero in history could probably be described aptly as a social justice warrior. Because they're fighting for social justice. Yeah, if they didn't have to fight for it, it really wouldn't be something heroic, would mm. it? It would just be like, hey, can we have this? They'd be like, sure, okay, mm. great. It's not really heroism, it's just we we asked. No, you have to fight for these fucking things. The 90s had an interesting sort of attempt in the cinemas to create a backlash to political correctness. Like, mm. they thought, like, oh, this is the thing we're going to get to make fun of. Like, I'm not picking PCU, but PCU is an interesting example of this, mm. where, okay, so we had Animal House, and in Animal House, it was, like, erudite rich guys versus slobby poor guys and like that's mm. sort of the dynamic that we're fighting in society in PCU the dynamic was assholes mm. versus people who actually care about things <laughs> and the assholes were considered the underdogs mm. and it, it's still kind of a funny movie but it's also well, it's hard it's entirely in the wrong place there, there's this idea that you know with with a wave of uh, kind of openly enforced sensitivity yeah that uh, a lot of people are saying, well, please stop trying to police my speech. Yeah. And a lot of people get uh, feel that it becomes a little bit too strict. Right. Uh, I remember uh, uh, George Carlin had a bit about sort of PC language. Yeah. And it's like, I, he, he, okay, I think some of this is good. I think mankind ought to be humankind. I think chairman ought to be chairperson. I think those are good things. But if you want me to call it a person hole cover, I'm not with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just going to call it a manhole well, cover. And I think there's, I think the <clears throat> film, the nineties <throat> film that spoke most entertainingly, but also I think most interestingly mm. about this was demolition man. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. All right. Demolition Man is a really, really fun movie. It was at best a modest success when it came out. I don't remember it being a bomb, but mm. it wasn't a huge hit. Uh, and it starred Sylvester Stallone as a cop in the near future of the 1990s when Los Angeles was like perpetually on mm. fire. And, uh, well, okay. And, uh, <laughs> Fair. Touche, Demolition Man. You predicted a lot of things. I think it started in 97? Yeah, it was a, I, I, think only a few, o- I think it opened in 1997. It was only a few yeah. years in the future at the time. And Sylvester Stallone was a cop and he was tracking down a, a maniac played by Wesley Snipes, who's basically a Batman villain. Uh, and in an attempt to apprehend Wesley Snipes, uh, a building blows up and it kills all the hostages that Wesley Snipes uh, had had and Swiss uh, Stallone is incarcerated along with Wesley Snipes. Mm. The thing is, they're not put in jail; they're put in cryogenic stasis, where they will be reconditioned via hypnotic suggestion mm. while they're frozen, and then they're going to wake mm. up decades into the future. It opens in '96, and okay. they're reanimated in 2032. Okay, so it's 2032 now. Wesley Snipes is like brought out for his like parole hearing, and of course, he goes on a killing spree. But the thing oh, is, no, is he, that he's, he's sprung. No, but he's initially brought up. It's complicated. All right. The idea is initially it seems like he's up for parole, but then we see someone hack the system and there's more to it than that. Well, what what happened in the movie is they swapped identities with somebody else. So like a a, a malcontent on the outside wanted this maniac free. So actually switched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's my point. Like that's that's how that worked. But that's supposed to be revealed later. I was going to let that go. Oh, well, sorry. It's not a big deal. Uh, So he gets out and he goes on a killing spree. But the thing is, it's the future Mm. and the politically correct have won and life is actually really peaceful and nice and no one is equipped to take down a murderer anymore. 
Mm. And so they have to spring Sylvester Stallone from jail in order for him to be the tough, evil guy who's going to take down the murderer. Mm. Okay. That's ridiculous. That's fundamentally ridiculous. <laughs> but what's interesting is it's having a conversation about how uh, what, about how fascism is going to take over mm. at some point. At some point, we're going to look towards the charismatic rich person, which indeed is what happens in Demolition Man. And they're just going to like basically convert everybody over into a cult-like mentality where nobody questions anything. But instead of becoming a bunch of racist assholes, they thought everyone was going to be really nice, which is the naivete of the 90s, I think, where we think political correctness is the absolute worst thing that could happen and not living in a fascist nightmare land. Like, Demolition Man is actually saying, like, the fascist, the, the, the horrible mass murdering nightmare land of 1996 uh -huh. is better than this well, land I where everything's pretty chill. Eventually, they did point out some weird, ironic things. Like, uh, we're going to go out to a fancy meal, and we're going to go to Taco Bell because they're the only, only uh, restaurant that survived the franchise wars. That's a funny so, joke. Yeah, that's a funny joke. And uh, but then they go to the underground and they meet Dennis Leary down there, and he's exactly. the one who's saying, "No, I want something a little bit more genuine because it's all fake up there. They're living in like uh, underground sewers in these yeah. ignored, impoverished communities that they're the utopia relies upon. It's the yeah. sort of Eloy and Morlocks dynamic that's revealed, and eventually they're the ones who are freed. Yeah. So it actually it isn't arguing for the fascism. It, I, it, I was getting to that. Right. I was getting because I think it has it kind of both ways. Okay. I think you can say to yourself, "Well, everything seems kind of nice here," and then you realize that any system in which only one viewpoint is like permitted mm. creates a subculture and creates a yeah. lower class and it creates ultimately suppression and mm. that's fundamentally wicked. So, so I think it's interesting yeah. that I just think it's interesting that the nineties thought it would go in the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> that's very nineties to yeah. think like the worst thing that could possibly happen is that we're going to be too nice to each other mm. and that's going to lead to fascism and not fascism stems from oh, no. I'm dropping cups. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Your cup is okay, too. I'm really, really glad it's my favorite cup. Okay, here Thank we go. You. Keep that cup I'm gonna far keep, away I'm from gonna me. I'm going to keep this really, really far away from you, <laughs> you monster. Um, people, someone asked me on Twitter, like, hey, where are all your outtakes? We keep them in. <laughs> you hear them. Yeah, there's very little we cut out of any of these shows. There's not a vault somewhere. No, no. We cut a little bit off the end, a little bit off the middle, and occasionally if we have a brain fart, we'll, like, cut a few it's seconds like, while we think. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's about it. Yeah, the, all our outtakes are us going, oh, gosh. I know. Yeah. I, think uh, Demolition oh, yeah. has, anyway, I think Demolition Man has this weird cultural document where, like, here's where we think we're going. Mm -hmm. And it's not where we went at all, but in some respects it is because it did end up having that same class divide, but it was along different sort of conversational lines. Yeah. And that's a really interesting thing. It's also a really entertaining action movie. <laughs> um, so I think Demolition Man just never stops being fascinating because it's one of the few kind of blockbustery, action-y kind of films that had political thoughts on its mind. And some of them are really dated. Some of them are still really apt. Some of them are only apt if you reverse things. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Maybe. But it's an but it's it's the 90s trying to be interesting in the face of mm. kind of banal genre crap. Yeah. 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 Um... 
I, I do like sort of the relationship uh, the 90s had with its own media. I think that Demolition Man touches on that. There's a, a, a film – I can't mention it because it's written by my boss that mm-hmm. I think is very much about sort of the way the media treats uh, celebrities even if they're awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, You're talking about Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers, uh, yeah. which was written by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, I, would actually, I would actually put that as an honorable mention. I'll mm-hmm. say it. That's uh, definitely a thoughtful film. Um, these are actually two different – I didn't put these on the same line, but I'm going to mention them both back to back because we're actually mm-hmm. running a little long here. But um, there are two films that really kind of captured uh, kind of the music scene mm. of the 1990s. Um, the music scene used to be a thing. There used to be a music <laughs> scene. Uh, I understand there are still pop acts and people are still like selling mm-hmm. songs and going on tour and selling millions of records and there's still gigantic pop stars everywhere. Um, I'm over the age of 33 and I uh, there have been articles written on this. There's actually figures yeah. that uh, on average... 33 is the age at which you give up on new music, Hmm. Uh, like almost deliberately. And you start going back and finding new things that you had heard about before and trying out, finding the things that influenced your favorite bands when you were a youth. It's when you start exploring music history post age 33. Uh, Before that, you're into it. After that, you're out. Yeah. Uh, So I understand. I'm too old for new music. I understand that there's still a music scene. The 1990s, however, there was a gigantic music scene because there were local bands. There were uh, – there are still local bands, but they were everywhere. They were in every bar on every night. There were music stores. There were – soundtrack records sold so well they could make up the losses on a film's budget. Right. Uh, like a, a soundtrack could really make millions upon millions upon millions of dollars and you know, recoup a bad film. Mm-hmm. Godzilla was one of those films. wasn't a popular movie, but that soundtrack sold like hotcakes. Right. Uh, we talked about the, the three volume soundtrack. Um, and I think rock culture, these people who are getting into bands and wanting to be musicians, we have stories about that now, but they feel sort of contrived. They're contrived from this era. And I feel like uh, Cameron Crowe's singles Mm-hmm. And Penelope Spheris' Wayne's World yeah. were two films that really captured that really well. I think um, you're right. Singles, they're, very, they're very particular music scenes, though. Yeah. There's yeah. lots of music scenes that aren't covered by the, those two films. That's true. I'm t- talking specifically about like the, the metal and grunge rock scenes yeah. that were kind of two of the bigger forms that were out at the time. Uh, you could also add films like CB4. That's another mm-hmm. one that kind of really ca- tries to zero in on a certain kind of musical scene. But yeah, Singles, Wayne's World were about metalheads, more or less, or grunge people. Uh, Singles has everything 90s in it. Tim Burton is in it in a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie Vedder is in it as a cameo. You know, it's it's yeah. in the film. He's got um, a supporting role. Yeah. yeah. It's, a full, it's not a huge role, but it's a supporting role. He's yeah, in yeah. multiple scenes. And it's it's a, another uh, film, sort of like Clerks, which is about people just sort of talking about their relationships, but mm-hmm. within this kind of music scene of the Pacific Northwest at the time. It's kind of a pastiche. Yeah. It follows a bunch of different characters and different elements yeah, of that yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, and, and, you know, these people who are in this 30-something yuppie sort of way, but updated for the 90s. You know, this new generation is how, how are they having conversations about relationships? How are they traversing jobs in the real world? Singles is actually a very interesting film. I don't think it's Cameron Crowe's best. But it's definitely. I like it a lot. I I think it's actually, in many respects, I know Almost Famous is considered his most personal because it's like very autobiographical. Mm. I feel like Singles is kind of his most genuine work. Like Almost Famous has a lot of nostalgia goggles on it. And I Mm. feel like Singles is basically just. Here's what it's like to live in Seattle right now. And it kind of fits. <laughs> and, and, you know, Seattle in the 1990s was a big, if you were into grunge rock or you were into, like, it was a musical, main, mainstream pop alternative music at the time. It was a musical mecca. Really, yeah, like, it was really a big deal. So I think getting a nice little portrait of that time and place 
totally perfect encapsulation of the 1990s mm-hmm. uh, in, in a time capsule sort of way. Singles wasn't necessarily hugely influential. I think Slacker has can carry that banner. Yeah. But I think Singles is is a really, really good off, vision of authenticity in the 1990s. Yeah. Wayne's World was the, the slapstick version of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wayne's World was based on a Saturday Night Live sketch. Um, I think Mike Myers and Dana Carvey, even though they were young at the time, were still a little too old to be playing characters like that. I think it's part, part of the joke. Part of the joke is the other still. They're still living in their parents' basement. They should not yeah. be doing this. They yeah. should be doing that. I think it would have played better if they were like 21 at the time instead mm-hmm. of 31, but I'll let it slide. It's fine. Um, and also, yeah, it takes place in this sort of heightened universe. They're, they're metalheads, but they live the lifestyle so passionately that they kind of live it almost you're talking about Pee Wee Herman and the cool as ice thing in this kind of slightly skewed version of reality. Well, they, they, they break the fourth wall constantly. There's yeah. a bit in the first, I think it's in the first movie where, um, they're like, okay, I have one idea on how we can save the day. And they open a door and it's a bunch of ninjas training in the back yeah. of a diner. I'm like, what are you going to do with all these guys? Oh, nothing. I just always wanted to open a door to a room that was full of ninjas training to kill people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. it. They have that power. Yeah. It was that kind of like, that mm. kind of meta narrative was actually getting a lot of traction mm. because people started to see themselves through the veil of popular culture now that public culture was more readily available thanks to mm. cable media, thanks to... But I feel like uh, uh, it, yeah. it was less... It, it wasn't as easy to take pop culture at face value anymore just mm. because there was so much of it. So yeah. if you're going to make something pop, you may as well address the fact that you're doing something really kind of cliched. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a scene where uh, where Wayne and and Tia Carrera like start... start going at it they start there's a sex scene and then mm. the phrase gratuitous sex scene flashes flashes on the camera the yeah. phrase itself and Wayne turns to the camera and just says excellent <laughs> yeah they're, they're like calling attention to these things yeah, and, and I think good. I think Wayne's world was just perfect at that and Wayne and Garth are actually very pleasant characters they're they're a little bit dumb but they're really well meaning and, yeah. and I think what uh, Wayne's World introduced to to the conversation was that metalheads were actually just kind of decent guys. Yeah, they're just people who like music. Like they're mm. not like th- there was this, still this conversation left over from the eighties that metalheads were all Satan worshippers who were coming to sacrifice their children. Yeah, that's not ever really been a thing. Mm. And Wayne's World did a, went a long way towards humanizing an yeah. entire subculture. Mm. And you're right. I think it's actually really... When you put it that way in particular, I think you're absolutely right. That's a really good pick. Mm. Uh, my next pick is a total kind of about face on that because we talked quite a bit about movies that dealt with counterculture, even mainstream movies that mm. ended up uh, being representative of counterculture, having thoughts about counterculture. But... The 90s was this interesting period where there were, like, this still really prominent genre in particular that was pretty much focused, maybe not, like, as a mission statement, but certainly everyone was doing it on just keeping whiteness alive. (laughs) Just keeping keeping the world as white as it can be, at the very least, within the realm of romantic comedies. That's not to say there weren't non-white romantic comedies and there were some really good ones. However, the ones that starred Meg Ryan were very, oh, very, no. very... They're, they're, they're there to placate. They're there yeah. to feel like everything's going to be fine. Meg Ryan's going to end up with Tom Hanks. Or if not Tom Hanks, mm. then Tom Hanks. <laughs> then the other Tom Hanks. Yeah, she, she, she did three movies with him, I think, in the 90s. I think Joe vs. the Volcano was at least weird. But mm. Sleepless in Seattle, which is this... I love Sleepless in Seattle. I think it's a really good movie. Mm. I think it's a very earnest film about... Another one about the way that, like, 
movies sort of frame our expectations for romance and whether that's reasonable or not. And the movie, I think, has a really smart conversation about that. And that's why I didn't pick it, because it's actually atypically Mm. clever for the romantic comedy genre, which, for the record, a genre I like. But when you look at certain romantic comedies, you see them really straining to keep this idyllic fantasy world of white affluence in our headspace. So the white telephone movies mm. of the 90s, if you will. The white telephone movies were uh, films that came out during the fascist era in Italy around World War II that presented this idea of bourgeois happiness that everyone's supposed to be aspiring to, but no one's actually going to get. And the white telephone was like one item that like literally no one would ever have because mm. it was just too grand. But people in movies had it. That's why they right. called it that. The ultimate, I think, white telephone movie of the 90s is You've Got Mail. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about this movie. You've you've got mail as a movie that is uh, on the surface full of charm. You got Tom Hanks, you got Meg Ryan, you got Steve Zahn, you got Greg Kinnear. These are all good things. It it feels here's the weird thing about You've Got Mail. Yeah, it's in the the tradition of the Meg Ryan romantic comedies of the time, uh, starting with Sleepless in Seattle Mm -hmm. and continuing onward. And there were like a couple throughout there. Yeah. There's a I I sense there was this weird bitterness to You've Got Mail mm. that undercut a lot because it it tried to it's a remake mm-hmm. uh, of The Shop Around the Corner yeah but it it tried to be really topical because it's about email now yeah it's not which about, is kind of a novelty at Shop the time Shop Around the Corner was yeah. about anonymous pen pals and You've mm. Got Mail is about people meeting anonymously like on I'm, the internet but they don't realize that they they own mm. rival bookstores one is a mm. like independently owned bookstore and the what other is, one is a big corporate Barnes and Noble Borders kind of monstrosity yeah. uh, Borders was. Uh, <laughs> I forgot. Borders hasn't been around for a while. We kind of need to say, you know, that gigantic corporate bookstores were considered like the scourge of society at one point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh no, another three-level bookstore! What a blight on our community. They're they're not—they're not curating their books. They just have all the books. What a tragedy! Yeah, Uh, (laughs) one of those ones where, like, I would happily go back to the previous generation of thing we were mad at than have what we have now, which is no bookstores anywhere. No bookstores. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Same with Block. I was like, I hate Blockbuster. Oh, no, but not... I I want them around if I get to keep all the other video stores. I still wanted to be able to get videos. Yeah. <laughs> like... But yeah, Borders uh, was actually an incredibly aggressive, gigantic business company, and this was happening in the real world, yeah. uh, that they would find little independent bookstores in major cities around the country. And by the time they were successful enough to do this, they would deliberately open really close to other small bookstores. Yep. In order to specifically put them out of business and create a monopoly. Yeah. And a lot of people boycotted Borders because of this. Or they would go to uh, the the little independent bookstores more deliberately to keep these things in business. Uh, In high school, and bless my teachers for thinking to do this, we went on a field trip up Westwood Boulevard here in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. to visit uh, the brand new gigantic Borders bookstore that had just opened right across the street from the Sisterhood bookstore. A little itty bitty oh. independent lesbian owned bookstore oh. that sold like queer books this and is my queer point. fiction. Yeah. This is my point. Mm. Because You've Got Mail is about that. But what does You've Got Mail do? Yeah, it has a commentary about how Tom Hanks' company is going to take over Meg Ryan's bookstore and isn't that sad. And he feels kind of bad about it. And he feels it, kind right? of bad about it. But what does it do? Mm. It humanizes that big corporate chain by making it Tom Hanks. Mm. 
Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is our yeah. romantic lead. Tom Hanks means well. And he gets to have a lot of speeches about how, really, I think this is the best thing overall. And, like, he talks about, like, oh, well, I can help put you in charge of the children's section mm. at our big corporate monstrosity bullshit. And that should be okay for you, right? This, like, bronze mm. medal, <laughs> even though you used to own a successful business. Mm-hmm. It's really, really cynical it's, and brutal, but it is presented... Kind of almost, almost pro-corporate. Yeah. Don't, it was totally pro-corporate, I think. I think it wears the veneer of anti-corporate, but it's totally pro-corporate. I mean, for God's sakes, like, it was made by Warner Brothers. Mm. Like, it's not like an independent <laughs> film. They're not going to, like, go against, you know, the sort of the wave of corporate America here. They're making mm-hmm. a film that toys with the idea of being actually, like... Having actually something meaningful to say, but actually has nothing to say. Mm-hmm. And it's actually just about how the corporations really do mean well. And it's okay because they're all run by Tom Hanks. And I know you're going to feel sad when all of your it's, dreams and endeavors it's, end. It's a, but it's going to be okay because you get to date Tom Hanks. It's a weirdly like sort of pro-corporate right-wing movie yeah. at a time when a lot of the, the politics of the films were skewing left. Exactly my point. Mm. This was something that we, we talked so much about films that felt like they were part of subculture or counterculture. And yeah, we talked about Godzilla as well, mm. but we're just openly mocking them. I think the success of the insidious messaging of something like You've Got Mail is something that we do need to talk about Mm. because it was everywhere. And indeed, the romantic comedy genre was everywhere. And a lot of romantic comedies dealt with, of the era, dealt with similar ideas of avarice where, indeed, we are dreaming about living this lifestyle. Mm. Even though, really, if you think about the text, not a lot of it's actually that appealing other than I don't have to work anymore. Now, I get (laughs) not wanting to have to work anymore. I get Mm. that. Mm. But it's actually just, it is the opposite mm. of a lot of the films of the 90s. And it was also insanely successful and just as popular. It's true. So I think it's something that maybe, is maybe that, an important part of the 90s. Maybe that's what I was referring to when I said it was a little bitter. Yeah, no. I, is, yeah, I kind of had this. this it represents something bad. Yeah, but yeah. I think it's actually very serious about mm. wanting to do something very bad. <laughs> anyway, what's your next pick? That's actually an, 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 an interesting angle. Just You've Got Mail is sort of the exemplar of this dark side of the 90s. I think so. Um, one of the most misinterpreted films of all time is Fight Club. Mm, that was uh, my pick. Yeah. To, uh, David that was Fincher's, my number one pick, actually. Okay, well. There we go. Uh, my, my other number one pick is from the, is from 1999, and oh boy, howdy, is that one problematic? Ooh. But we're, we're about to get to American Beauty. Uh, oh my god, really? <laughs> yep. Wow, interesting. Uh, but yeah, Fight Club uh, is because the film is so cool, and because David Fincher is such an exciting, uh, exciting filmmaker. He. Uh, I think a lot of people watch this thing and watch a character like Tyler Durden and think that it's selling him as cool mm-hmm. when really it's actually doing the very opposite. And I think fight club is, was doing something very important. And we were talking about political correctness in the late nineties. There was this idea of uh male dumb as being a toxic thing. Mm-hmm. We didn't use the phrase toxic masculinity, but we did yeah, have the phrase coined, yeah, the yeah. sensitive new age guy, the nineties, uh, the nineties man. man. And this is something that came up in like golden eye. Like mm-hmm. what, what function does James Bond play? in a world where men are, are asked to be more sensitive. Yeah, Judy Dench calls him a sexist dinosaur to his face. Mm. And he just 
It's like, yeah. It's like, well, yeah, yeah I guess I, I, I guess I have a lot I'm, of growing up to there, do. There's a, and there's actually a scene where, like, James Bond is brooding on a beach. It's like, do I want to see that in a James Bond movie? Well, in 1995, yeah, I think we yeah. do. Uh, well, I love the one where uh, after decades of teaching kids smoking was cool, and, like, Tomorrow Never Dies, there's a scene where he, like, goes up to a terrorist or something, and he says, do you have a light? And the guy's, like, pack, patting himself down for matches, and Bond just punches him in the face and just says, it's a filthy habit. <laughs> you should not smoke. <laughs> Yeah, a little hypocritical <laughs> now, James, but better late than never, I we're, guess. We're, we're, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. <laughs> James Bond is the last to get on board of anything. Couldn't even get on snowboarding. <laughs> they thought snowboarding was too modern for the world is not enough. Oh, so they made him ski. Again. <laughs> they thought that was too young like, for James Bond. <laughs> it's like the fifth James Bond movie. Skis, and everyone's but, just like, oh, you gotta trust the broccoli. The, uh, the broccoli's are in charge of everything. I do not trust the broccoli. I, I don't think the broccoli's know what they're doing. Here's the what we need to do with James Bond. Get rid of him. Yeah. Put him in the bin. He's, we don't need James Bond anymore. Anyway, to Fight Club. Moving uh, on. The idea that the sensitive, the quote, the, the call for men to be a little bit more sensitive was um, forcing them into a lifestyle of corporate consumption. Yeah. Uh, living a more posh lifestyle. There's uh, a really they, great bit a lot in, of people, in, in Fight Club where it's just panning over Edward Norton's apartment mm-hmm. and it's using it as an Ikea catalog. Yeah, like everything all of, all of the things just starts appearing and like the yeah. price tag appears of everything that's sort of appearing in his catalog because yeah. uh, it turns out that, and this is the thing that Fight Club is criticizing, this sort of notion of the sensitive new age guy wasn't anything to do with sensitivity. It was just another way to sell you stuff. Yeah. It's like now men can have sort of more sensitive spaces. So buy things. And the film very directly addresses that in dialogue. Is this table going to define me as a character? And he starts to feel very, starts being very bitter about that. And also very emasculated by that. Mm -hmm. And with no generational, a unifier. This was sort of the calling card of Gen X. Mm-hmm. There wasn't one thing to draw us together, like a war or mm-hmm. like a depression or the Kennedy assassination. Or, yeah, or an assassination. There was no one gigantic mm-hmm. cultural milestone for us to latch onto. The only thing we could fall back on was uh, corporate entertainment. Yeah, was was consumption. Yeah, uh, the 1990s was a time where somebody would wear a Tide logo on their T-shirt. Yeah, just sort of ironically, it's yeah. like what do we or got? STP or whatever. Yeah, just yeah. whatever it was. Like I'm gonna wear a, like a, a corporate logo on my shirt. It's because, ironic because 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 it's complete bullshit. This is all we have. Yeah. I have nothing really to sell, so I may as well play into the system. And yeah. it was all ironic. There's some wit to that. It was of course oversold. Yeah, but of course he uh, the main character, the Edward Norton character, begins to feel emasculated by that, and he f- finds this other character, Tyler Durden, who says, "Let's do the punk rock thing. Let's just tear it all down." Self-improvement means nothing. We have to destroy everything. Self-destruction is the new rule. Self-destruction is the new rule. Um, There's a a scene, and Edward Norton commented. I watched the film with the commentary track. It's a good commentary track. Ed Norton actually pointed this out, and he said that uh, there's a scene where um, Ed Norton and and Tyler Durden, the the Brad Pitt character, are walking down a, a row of cars and just smashing them with crowbars. Yeah. Just idly. It's like these cars are just bullshit. Smash. And uh, the one that they end up on is the new Beetle. And they said this was a, a deliberate choice because the Beetle was sort of like repackaging this nostalgia from the 60s. But now it's like this really safe suburban vehicle. Mm-hmm. And they smash it in, smash into it. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, there's all of this like anti-corporate messaging. And of course, I like when, the one. I like, we just talked about how we're kind of nostalgic for Blockbuster. I like the one where they just take a magnet to a Blockbuster. A and Blockbuster video. Uh, and in fact, if you pay really close attention, one of the end caps they're erasing is Alien 3. Yeah. That's da- David Fincher's previous movie that he's disowned. Yeah. Uh, and that's like his only commentary. He's ever talked about Alien Three, 
But and that's really exciting for a little bit watching this guy just sort of say fuck it all. Yeah. Let's just destroy everything. And of course, most importantly, as men, this is a film about maleness. Yep. Uh, how as men, how are we going to assert our masculinity again? We're just going to punch each other. To what end? Because we can hurt we're, something. We're reverting to yeah. barbarism. Yeah, that's yeah, what it yeah. is. We're so angry and, and so lost mm. and so directionless that we have nothing else to do but hurt. And and that feels cathartic for the first act of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like we're going to destroy everything, and you're like, yeah, fuck it, yeah, we don't give a fuck anymore. Yeah. Fuck, 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 and fuck. People and people tend to overlook the last act of the movie, don't yeah, they? And well, and the uh, idea is throughout the course of the second act is that we realize that if we follow that line of destruction to its logical end, it will lead to a militant. Type Type of terrorism. Yeah. And there's a speech that nobody ever quotes about uh, Fight Club where uh, it takes place right at the beginning of the third act where uh, Edward Norton has been knocked out and Tyler Durden kind of gives this dreamy speech to him while he's half conscious yeah. about how I picture a world where everything has been destroyed and all that's left is the skeleton of these buildings and people are climbing up vines and throwing spears and we're essentially cavemen again. And that is utopia. That's the point of the movie. It's not the point that everybody ever quotes, though. Mm -hmm. Because people kind of are so taken by how cool that first act is that they kind of tend to ignore that this entire point of the film is that the purity that he longs for is this violent caveman barbarism. Well, it's it's that it is is the absolute complete downfall of Mm. social structure. Yeah. In which, uh, and we need social structure to survive as a species in a lot of ways. We need social structure to keep us from killing each other. And and also, uh, this is a world, uh, this is showing what the ideal version of the world is to a masculine male. And And there's no femaleness in this movie except for the Helena Bonham Carter character Mm -hmm. who is completely, horribly mistreated. Yeah. Now, she is in on this kind of nihilism tick, so you can understand why she would be with the character. But she's also the first character to grow out of it. Yeah, she grows out of it. She understands what's really going on, and uh, I think she handles... Like, she's depicted very responsibly, I think. Yeah, Or she's she's mistreated, but she doesn't ever... She's never a victim. Yeah. She refuses to play a victim or be a victim in any of this. And, of course, ultimately, the message of the film is all of this maleness... We need women in our world. We desperately need women. We're, we're in our not. World. The, we the whole idea here is that we're, we've been kind of rejecting the the quote the feminine and living in sort of this male fantasy, and that is going only to, going to lead to the downfall of society. Well, because this is an anti male screed. It turns into monomania. It turns yeah, yeah, into yeah. like you know, and that's something that I think. Yeah, Fight Club starts off by bringing up some really valid points about mm. how, um, yeah, sensitivity has been turned from a perfectly good philosophy and probably a really useful and mm. important uh, uh, evolution of society as a whole. Of course, corporations have decided to try to monetize it. Why wouldn't they? Mm. Because they want money. And we can argue about that. But that mm. doesn't mean sensitivity is a bad thing. Because when you remove it, again, we're reduced to barbarism. We're mm. left to empty anger. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. you can justify it however you want. But at the end of the day, you're just beating the shit out of each other and calling yourself a big man. Mm. And it's fascinating <laughs> to me that there's every – I feel like every generation or two, there's a big movie that is just this – macho and violent and stylish and teaches you the idea that this lifestyle is something to be wanted Mm. uh, but only in the last act does it really get around to why it's terrible Mm. and people miss the point completely. Are you thinking of Scarface? I'm thinking of Scarface. I'm thinking maybe of Wolf of Wall Street. Oh yeah, there's another one where I feel like there's a potential where people are going to miss the point someday if they haven't already. 
The, well, because, these are, because these are moral right. fables, but the moral aspect comes at the end. And these, I've these about are this. films made by skilled filmmakers uh-huh. who are, are so good at making the fun stuff seem fun yeah. that that's all we take from it. And, I think, and that's dangerous yeah. because I feel like – I talked about this recently on Critically Acclaimed. I feel like – some, or maybe as we've got mail, but I feel like there's a certain short-sightedness to the way that we interpret – films because we only look at them through the lens of who we are now and we're not necessarily thinking about who we will be. Mm -hmm. These cautionary tales are telling you that you will end up unhappy. Mm -hmm. But a lot of us aren't thinking about that. A lot of us aren't thinking past who we're going to be when we're 30. Yeah, you yeah. know, and we just feel like, listen, who's who's to say I'm going to live that long? So, yeah, Have think, you seen the news? And as a result, think, yeah. we're just having these short-sighted interpretations of mm-hmm. art that's actually meant to teach us something that's the exact opposite of the takeaway. Exactly. And boy, is that exactly. the '90s? That's that's <laughs> certainly the '90s. It's certainly Fight Club. Short-sighted. When Fight, Fight Club, Club says we need not have a, we don't have a war, uh, and they treat it like a tragedy. <laughs> that's supposed to be a two good year, thing. Yeah. Two years later, after 9/11, uh, Fight Club becomes a relic of the '90s. Yeah, yeah. and it's the sort of thing where it's just like that's not what we. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> Jesus. But I think Fight Club gave uh, adolescents two very important lessons because mm. the first was, yeah, that rebellion is really fun and that can be really cathartic. Yeah. But it's also something that is temporary and something you need to grow out of. Yeah. And it actually gave, I think ultimately it's a very responsible film. Uh, the problem is... Yeah, it's, it's too exciting for its own good in a lot in of ways. Way, which, yeah. in a way, makes it kind of irresponsible. So it's yeah. kind of a fascinating film in that regard. Mm. All right, uh, you took my number one. All right. So that's fine. So I only have one left. And I only have one left, too. All right, so my number two, mm. this is like I was debating which one was going to be my number mm. one, uh, is a film, and you discussed this a little bit when you talked about um, movies that relate to the way that we interact with media. Mm. Um, and you brought up Breathless. And I think... You know, the counterpoint to that in the 90s, I think the film Mm -hmm. that understands and illustrates the way that people who grew up on a steady diet of popular culture become influenced by it and Mm -hmm. how it changes the way that they not only interpret the world but behave within it Mm -hmm. uh, is Wes Craven's Scream. Okay, I, I figured you'd pick Scream. Scream is it's, first off. Scream is one of my favorite movies. It's certainly my favorite movie of the 90s. I think (laughs) Fight Club is more. sort of defining to the 90s. Luca, get away from the garbage can. Okay. <laughs> that was indeed the cat. Oh, Luca. I saw him do it. I was like, no, it was in slow motion. Thank you for cleaning up after the cat. Quite welcome. <laughs> Again, we leave these things in. Um, here, so, yeah. So, Scream was a movie. Uh, um, I, I think it's still very well regarded now, but I think it's easy to forget just how significant it was in the 90s. Um, the slasher genre was the leading horror genre of the 80s. Mm. It was the most common. Cheap. It was the cheapest. It was cheap everyone's to, cheap to make. Everybody saw it. They all made money because yeah. they were so cheap to make. Exactly. Yeah. But in the 90s, they started to fall out of favor. They stopped making money. The big franchises started to get diminishing returns. And we just didn't really have an identity for the horror genre for a lot of the 90s. There was no like defining wave. Right. Yeah, um, which, which makes it a fascinating time. I actually think the first half of the '90s is full of really interesting horror movies that like aren't really mm. fitting into conventional molds, and I think there's mm. a real lot of really great stuff in there. Uh, but when it came time to make uh, Scream, they decided to make a slasher movie about teenagers who grew up watching slasher movies, and as a result. Again, the killers are following slasher movies because that's all they know. Mm. And their victims are following slasher movies because that's also mm. all they know. Great, and- uh, great great, line of dialogue from screen is uh, there was some concern at the time that violence was 
causing violent behavior. Mm-hmm. Scream responded to that by saying, uh, movies don't make killers, they make killers creative. Which is it doesn't create killers, it makes killers creative. Which I think is really interesting, because when you follow uh, the franchise down a bit and you get to Scream 3, Scream 3 actually has a very pointed take, which is, yeah, movies don't make us uh, uh, killers. Mm-hmm. Hollywood does. <laughs> and actually, like, the, the insensitivity and the sexism mm-hmm. and... Uh, the absolute apathy towards moral decency from the Hollywood system in the art that we consume. Specifically toward women. Specifically towards women, especially in a character who was modeled after Harvey Weinstein, played by Lance Henriksen, Mm -hmm. um, and a movie director named Roman. Uh, These these characters are perpetuating a cycle of, in the very least, imaginary violence, if not literal violence, if not at least intellectual violence Mm. towards women. And that creates a cycle that we are permanently stuck in, and that's why Nev Campbell can never seem to get free of this. Mm. But it all starts here in Scream 1. And Scream 1 is a film that uh, the teen movies of the 90s up until this point were kind of indistinguishable from the movies of the 80s or the 70s. They were just teens doing teen stuff. And what you realize is that when Scream came out, you finally like, oh my god, they know how we talk now. <laughs> All of a sudden, they captured our voice. I mean, yeah, okay, maybe not like a specific you know, region, mm. but the idea that we are absorbing fiction because all of a sudden... We're living more sheltered lives in a lot of ways. We're not going out. Our parents aren't letting us go out on the streets of New York City for like 12 hours a day and come back home for dinner anymore. Mm. Like, it's a different environment and we're just sort of being raised by televisions. And how that affects the way that we view the world is something that Scream understands. It's something that Scream sees in a positive light because it actually gives us the weapons with which to deal with a society that is based on popular culture. And also how it goes horribly wrong because mm. it is easy to look at a horror movie and misinterpret it if you're a misogynistic piece of shit mm. because that's ultimately what the villains... I mean, the whole movie is based on... whole franchise, really, mm. is based on slut-shaming. Yeah. It's yeah. based on Sidney Prescott's mom didn't... You know, should, wasn't the a conventional... A character is not even in the movie as yeah. the main character of the series. And she really is. And, you know, so all of a sudden she left... She slept around mm. and she left... She, she broke up someone's marriage and as a result... That that mar- the son of that marriage is mm. now on a kick. He hates women, and mm. he is intent. He's intent on taking the protagonist of Scream and first off making her have sex with him, tricking her into having sex with him, so that she will lose her validity as a character. Because that's what movies taught him: is that people mm. who have sex deserve to die. And mm. only then can he just murder her. Why? Because now he can completely dehumanize her. Mm. He had to relate to her on a human level before. Luca, get away from the garbage can. Luca, I'll, you're I'll, doing it again, buddy. I'll get him. Please, I don't please. understand what your what your deal is with the garbage can today. Get away. Get away. I love you so much, but please stop. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. It actually deals with a lot of relevant mm-hmm. issues of the time, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know the cat's so distracting. I'm just going to ask you to move on. What's your right. What's well, your last uh, one? B- before we move away from Scream, because I love Scream as well, and Scream took the world a little bit by surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, nobody really expected this thing. It was directed by Wes Craven, who did a. a a Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, not a bit of a losing streak. Yeah, a lot of like a lot of the films leading up to like he had just uh, come off of uh, Vampire in Brooklyn with Eddie Murphy, which is a better film than it gets credit for, but it's still not that good a movie. He'd also done uh, New Nightmare, which is a classic, but wasn't considered so at the time. Well, I was going to say that when it comes to our relationships with media, I think um, New Nightmare is a little bit more philosophical about it because it's a little bit more of a fantasy film. It's about how the stars of one of his movies. 
uh, has now sort of broken into the real world and is now stalking the producers and the actors who made those movies. And that's sort of, uh, you know, sort of this insidious nature of how the media we consume gets under our skin and can literally kill us. I actually 100% uh, agree with that. Mm. But my only thing is that although I think there's a really good argument made that New Nightmare is the better movie, I think mm. Scream is the 90s movie. Fair, they both came out in the 90s, though, so they, you could say they I think Scream both, represents yeah. the 90s I think better right, than yeah. New Nightmare. I think New Nightmare is a little bit more of a comment on the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like putting a button on it, even though it came out in, like, 94. Um, yeah, like, like New Nightmare ended the 80s, mm. Scream took the 80s and started the 90s, even though it was like five years into it. Uh, People took the wrong lessons from Scream and they just started making more generic slashers Mm. just with a few like lines of self-aware dialogue here and there. There are a couple of good ones here and there, but mostly no. Yeah. Uh, I I know what you did last summer isn't the classic that you remember. Mm. Cherry Falls is good. And Cherry Falls, even that was at the falling end of that secondary wave. I know. I just like getting getting an opportunity to celebrate it because it's one of the more interesting films in that post-Scream cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, uh, to American Beauty. Uh, American Beauty... uh, probably the most 90s film of the 90s in that. That's an interesting choice, man. Well, because it deals very much with a certain kind of dif- disaffection that we don't have anymore. Mm. Uh, you know, I was talking about how Fight Club was about how um, men were feeling emasculated by being forced into this n- no war to unite us consumer type culture. And I think uh, the suburbs became kind of the main enemy of the 1990s. And you see a lot of that de- deconstruction of suburban ideals as we consumed in media, like the Brady Bunch movie. And I think... Uh, American Beauty took an affluent family and showed us how unhappy they were. And at the time, it felt like it was really blowing the lid off of stuff. Uh, <laughs> like the boomers, man. Maybe yeah, like, they're unhappy. Yeah, the boomers are unhappy. And you know, it's, it's a, more or less a story about a, a middle-aged man who's going through a midlife crisis, played by Kevin Spacey. He won an Academy Award for the role. And he gets a crush on a teenage girl, as, and his daughter is completely being ignored by this. And she starts a relationship with a man who really sees the world, man. <laughs> Through his camera, because he's like a media junkie, and now he's using media to sort of capture little moments. All of this stuff, in 1999, felt so bloody revolutionary. It was like really, really capital I important. I remember uh, hearing a bit uh, from uh, critic Amy Nicholson, one of my favorite critics. Uh, She... uh, talked about how she was in college when American Beauty came out and she remembers going to a party and she was trying to tell, and this, this came from a lot of different people at a lot of different parties. Like, how are you? How are you feeling? Oh, I'm really down, man. I just saw American Beauty and whew, just blew my mind, man. Like American Beauty was really trying to crack open just how unsavory suburban heaven was. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, if you want sort of a fantasy version of this, you can go to Pleasantville, which deals very directly with mm-hmm. a 50s sitcom and how it needs to be cracked open. Did that come out the same year? Uh, year previous. Oh, okay. Pleasantville was 98. But um, yeah, this was sort of a much more serious adult drama about these mm-hmm. things. Uh, and yeah, Del- there was an, an idea that in this world, there's all this infidelity and there's, you know, you know, underage sex and they're like literal Nazis living in the yeah. suburbs. And homophobia yeah. is actually alive and well. It's a mask. Also, for it's a mask. Yeah, and this is all about all about this this really serious drama about all the masks we wear. These were all on our, on our minds and of primary concern, specifically right at the end of the 1990s. Two years later, after 9-11, just like Fight Club, it's completely irrelevant. We don't need to think about those things anymore. We're not concerned with these weird sort of 
insular concerns about white suburban culture any longer. It didn't matter. But it was important enough that it won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Well, I don't think that's actually a mark of importance, but it felt significant it's, it's, at the it, time. It felt significant enough for the Academy to recognize it. It's actually amazing to me when you look at every movie that came out in 1999, which mm. is, I think, one of the great years for movies in mm. history. The Best Picture nominees all sucked. They're kind of like yeah. Sixth Sense is kind of cool, but like, and The Insider was good. It's, it's kind, they're but they're actually, cool, but, but yeah. like, Insider is actually like formally not not that interesting like a film it's mm. just well made and american beauty first off i'm, I'm gonna say this right now mm. american beauty is beauty is filmed like a fucking maniac <laughs> it is so conrad l hall, hall shot the shit out of that movie there's mm. no denying that that's a very good looking movie I, I remember reading a very bitter review saying oh yeah if you want to if you want to convey suburban angst just illuminate a red door Puh. it's like no that's, that's a good they, image they, they, right they, there. they did their job they did their job yeah. For me, uh, when I look at American Beauty, I don't see a film from the '90s. I think you can. You don't you, think it's like dated and very much of its time. I do time? think it's. I do think it's dated. I think it's very much of its time, but its time was 1980. Oh, you think I th- so? I think. I think the idea of America uh-huh. that American Beauty is espousing. I think it's very boomerish. Yeah, but I think it's, it's actually about boomers, it's yeah. about boomers, and I appreciate that a lot of young people were suddenly looking at their parents in a different way afterwards. Mm. But for me, I look at. American Beauty as this kind of unapologetic throwback to the types of like serious midlife crisis movies that we were getting in the early 80s you know and um, I don't find that very interesting you mean like the 30 something kind of crowd yeah like that 30 something kind of thing or fire sort of stuff you know any any movie about people who get a divorce and have to really think about shit Mm. and um I mean, it's not bad, but I actually don't think it's very interesting. I don't think it actually has a lot to do with the 90s. I think it has a lot to do with the kind of... I think it has a lot to do with the deconstruction of the family unit that we Mm. had been on a kick from since at Mm. least Archie Bunker. Yeah. Like, I think that, for me, just puts it as... It it feels retro to me. Even even at the time, like, you put it in context, it feels like a retro film to me in a lot of ways. I I don't know. I think this very specific uh, exploration of the sort of the explosion of the nuclear family uh, was very much on people's minds in the 1990s. Well, what Uh, I think is... More so than in the 80s, or even, you know, like, Kramer versus Kramer, for instance, won Best Picture in the 70s. Right. And um, that... uh, that film was sort of examining a trend that was going on at the time. Divorce rates were skyrocketing, and we were trying to figure out why. What does mm-hmm. divorce look like now? What is modern divorce? What is modern marriage? But I think that one was more uh, looking at just sort of a, a very modern, very suburban, very bourgeois experience. Uh, and I think uh, American Beauty was taking that same bourgeois experience but widening the scope. It wasn't just about modern divorce or modern marriage or modern relationships. It was mm-hmm. about everything that we strive for as our conservative dream. I think this one was trying... I think this and Scream, or this and uh, New Nightmare, which we just talked about, were really trying to shut the book on the 80s. That these were kids of the... the these boomers, they were kids of the 80s, they were uh, you know buying into sort of the Reagan dream, they had succeeded, and it didn't bring them the happiness they wanted. And by the time we got to 1999, it was time to put that in a mainstream feature. Here's film. the thing that I think is fascinating about American Beauty, is mm-hmm. that we keep sort of... Listen, it's tricky when you're reviewing a film because it's so tempting to try to look at, like, intent. Uh And what you really have to work with is the film that you got. But when you think about the statement that American Beauty is making and, like, Mm. where it comes from, it's really interesting to note that the ending of the movie changed dramatically. 
and that this movie and the ending that they shot mm-hmm. is not the movie that we got like at all. Like the ending of the movie involves like Thora Birch and Wes Bentley like going on trial for murder and getting convicted. Well, that was the original ending. That was the original ending. It had a lot more to do with sort of the scandal sheets. Like, okay. at the time. Like, a lot of these sort of like Joey the, Buttafuco kind of Menendez things. And, brothers. Yeah, and, and when you look at it all as setting up this, like, urban melodrama thing, a lot of those things that feel sort of really fascinating and relevant, they seem kind of accidental. <laughs> and well, you start, what, and I said whether that, or not but, that's accidental, no, no, it's my, in the movie. My point yeah. is this. My point is this. I, and as, I think that, that you're right. It doesn't matter what, what matters what's in the movie. Hmm. But I think it goes a long way to explaining why... When I watch the movie, those things that feel like they're such a mind blower, mm-hmm. and were to me when I was in high school, but now today, they feel really contrived. <laughs> they feel <laughs> well, really I'm, phony I'm, to me. I'm not going to say that uh, American Beauty holds up, and uh, okay. I was going to go on to say that this is an incredibly dated film, which Agreed. is why I say it's one of the defining films of the 90s, because mm. it couldn't have come from any other time. I think it was dealing with a lot of the echo of the 1980s. I think it was dealing with it through a certain kind of cynicism that was big in the 90s. And it ceased to be relevant shortly thereafter because it was only significant to that time and place. Um, That's fair. I think it's an effective drama, but I think it has aged horrendously, mm-hmm. uh, especially what we know now about Kevin Spacey. That's going to be hard to especially watch. Especially, su- I haven't watched it since. All a a subplot about a middle-aged man trying to have an affair with like a sixteen or seventeen-year-old is is not savory. Like it was never was. It, it, but I mean, it like... was. It was presented as not savory, but it was also presented as like quote daring at the time. Mm-hmm. There, there is actual underage nudity in the film. Uh, Thor Birch was only seventeen at the time, and she has a topless scene, uh, and. Yeah, at the time that was seen as like really kind of out there on the edge and really daring, and now it just feels really kind of gross. Uh, and, and it'll be difficult to watch with from new eyes, and I would be interested to hear what a younger person, what somebody in high school or college now would think of this movie, if they would understand any of the drama or if they would only take away the unsavory elements, because it's incredibly unsavory now. I, it's actually hard to miss, and yeah. it's kind of amazing that we were so willing to just see that as, mm. wow, that's so important, and not just mm. like, isn't that kind of gross? Can we just admit that this is gross? And, like, because it is gross. And 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 yeah, his the the Lester Burnham character, the Kevin Spacey character, his impulses were seen as kind of gross, but they're also presented as kind of understandably universal. It was and that's a little that, that's the out, gross part. It came out almost at the exact same time as Fight Club. Yeah, yeah. And when you think about it, like Fight, they both have scenes of a character who has been part of this corporate cog system mm. for a really long time and is completely mentally checked out, going to their boss and their boss saying, we're going to fire you, and then blackmailing them. Yeah. And then just walking out proudly with their box of stuff, and mm. they're going to do whatever they want at home and like find their find mm. their journey. Where, But whereas I think Fight Club actually has something very pointed to say about it, I think American Beauty is trying to get bonus points off of some superficial observations. Mm. Uh, there's good performances in it. I think yeah. uh, uh, Annette Benning in particular is really great. Yeah, I, um, I wish she had a little bit more of a catharsis, like a realization about herself. She yeah. stays on the same note throughout the whole movie. I wonder if the original ending would have given her more of an ending. Maybe so. Because it feels like she just stops. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I see your point. I, mm. I kind of disagree on this because I think it's so much of a throwback mm. that it feels less I, of a 90s I, movie I, and more of a I understand commentary why, on previous decades. I do understand why you would say that, but yeah. I think I think there's a lot of the 90s personality got, coloring that comment. I think that's fair. No, it's totally fair. We're going to disagree on this one, but I totally see your point. Mm. All right, so that's The Iron List. Thank you, everybody, for listening. These are the movies that we think define the 90s. Uh, What movies do you think define the 90s? I would be curious to find out. 
Uh, you can either tweet us at Critic Acclaim or at William Bibiani if you just want to share it for funsies. Or if you want to email us, you can send us an email. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net and we will listen to and read and discuss your arguments. Do you think we screwed up? Do you think we missed something? We would love to hear from you. Um, and uh, yeah, we'd love to hear what films you think define the 90s. I would be especially interested. Mm. And I would love to hear from people who were actually around in the 90s. But if anyone wasn't around in the 90s... I'd be very curious to see, like, you know, someone who was, like, born in 2000 or shortly mm-hmm. after something like that. Because now it's like, it's you weren't there for it. Mm-hmm. I'd be very curious to hear what you feel like are the movies that represent the 90s to you. What movies were sold to you as the movies of the 90s? In the way that, say, yeah. Saturday Night Fever was sold to me as a movie about the 70s, mm-hmm. for example. Of many examples. Lots of movies are about the 70s. Or All the President's Men or whatever. Um, so I'd be very curious to hear from you. If you don't have experience with the 90s, I want to share with us what movies you think of when you think of the 90s. Mm-hmm. For better or worse, just they feel 90s-ish. I'd love to hear from you. So that's, uh, that's The Iron List. Thank you everybody for listening. If you want to vote for the next episode of The Iron List, which will happen in March, uh, you can join us at Patreon. Patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, shortly after this episode debuts, we'll have another poll up. Um, we have not come up with the entries for that poll because we were too busy making this list, but we'll talk about that very, very soon, obviously, because then the poll will be up. That's how it works. <laughs> thank you for spelling that out. You're welcome. Uh, and uh, we especially want to thank all of our Patreon uh, subscribers who voted for this episode. Um, all of our Patreon subscribers get tons of bonus content. You get bonus podcasts, uh, commentary tracks, Google Hangouts. We just I really appreciate um, all the contributions you make to keeping the critically acclaimed network alive because we literally couldn't do it without you. Um, so, Agreed. Thank you. All right. So, again, we're on Twitter at Critical Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, keep on listing. Keep on ironing. What's something from the 90s? Dudical. Dudical's the 80s. Was it? Yeah. Bazonkers. Me's a buzz as a husband bit a bell and a...